straight riffing is filmed in front of a live internet audience. I am riffing. Mitch is riffing. What more can I say? Straight, straight riffing. Do you know how fucking desperate I am for some comfort in my life? I need that question. This show is intended for mature audiences only. I've seen a lot of this. I don't know how much more disgusting this experience could get. Are you really not having a good time? I'm having a fantastic time. I just can't believe how disgusting you are. I kept yelling, I'm, I'm not going to whip my dick out. We talked about that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Featuring your host, Mitch Marzoni. I don't walk around going like, hey, I'm really weird. Look at me, I'm weird. As far as I'm concerned, I'm perfectly normal. It's uh, it's a litmus test for people. Teddy I'm a hate mercenary. Yeah. All right. All right. Hate mercenary. Hate, hate, hater for hire. Hater for hire. I should put a bit of sky. There are two victimless crimes, all right? One, jerking off when your window's open. Two, <laughs> necrophilia. I'm confessing to a large-scale crime. Okay. All right. right Legs akimbo engaged in sexual discourse. Come on, man. What kind of guest are you? It's archive for posterity. Great internet. So, uh, it'll, uh, it'll come back to haunt you every day. It's time to riff. That is right, bitches and motherfuckers. It is June 4th, 2012, episode 63, I think, maybe four, probably three. I'm 63, Mitch. Uh, 63. <laughs> let's go with 63. Uh, with me, as always, is the hater for hire, the difficult brown, Mr. Teddy, TMI Tutson. How the fuck are you, sir? Oh, man, it's a fantastical day. It's great. Born in the USA, made in the USA, back in the USA, USA all day, every day. Riffopolis, about to go down. What up, Mitch? And uh, with us, a very special guest here to kick out the motherfucking riffs, Mr. Wayne Kramer. How the fuck are you, sir? Yeah, you didn't see that one coming, did you, Wayne? Oh, no, boom. Yeah. Got you with the theater. Yeah. Hit you with yeah. the amphitheater. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Happy to be with you today, fellas. <laughs> Have you ever been in I know, I know it sound I, just by doing that, I was like, oh, he probably immediately thinks this is some like cheesy morning show. Whoa, hold on. Like, woo, 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 woo. Oh, but uh, hopefully. Uh, Who doesn't enjoy a good echo? Legal re- he asked for a reverb before. Yeah, that's I, did, I did ask for it. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, these motherfuckers don't. Yes, that's much better. <laughs> there you go. I so, don't uh, get any reverb. I ask for it, and then bam, reverb when you least expect it. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how people suddenly change their entire personality the moment they have reverb. They're like, <clears throat> I mean, hold on. That's a very organic human thing, I feel like. And that's how you can, if they aliens ever come V-style, you know, just throw some reverb at them, and if their voice doesn't automatically change, you know that they're compromised by aliens. Does that make sense? Right. Oh, you're saying if aliens take over right. our bodies, yes. we're not if sure. If our alien overlords take over, reverb is the only thing, basically. It's the only thing that can save you. Yeah, mm. right. See, Are you concerned, Wayne, about aliens uh, taking host of our bodies and pretending to be us? I've been waiting for them patiently. Right, right. I, I would, I would, I would applaud them. Right, sending out signals all the time. Yeah, please right. come. You'd be welcome. Right, right. Well, let's see. You, uh, you the MC Five started in the '60s, right? Mid early '60s. Right after the Earth cooled. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so kick out the jams would just be reaching Mars. Was that last the time week? Frame? Something like that, I think. As far as radio, so John Carter, right? Right. John Carter right. had just landed on Mars, right? 
He, he would, could he could I'm, he could relax. I'm the big smooth, on Mars. Sounds. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm huge on Mars. They love this guy on Mars. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I am so right now happening on Mars. <laughs> you know that mysterious face kind of thing on Mars. We're not really sure what it is. <laughs> Wayne That's kills me. it there. It's me. Yeah, that is Wayne, right? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'll be playing. I'll be playing at the Mars face. Uh, <laughs> Well, actually, we had, you know, we had, uh, the MC5 had quite a, uh, we put a lot of energy into space and space music. Uh, we uh, we did travel the spaceways from planet to planet. Okay. Space, what, star, Starship? Is that one of the... Starship was uh, how the, we got there, With yeah. the Sun Ra yep. samples, right? Yep. Yeah, the, uh, the great... Uh, uh, Sun Ra uh, opened the door for us and showed us that music could li- exist beyond the beat and the key and beyond Western ideas of what music was, and that you could actually go to other worlds in music. Was that kind of similar? I feel like that that reminds me a lot of uh, Morrison with the Doors and their whole idea with the Doors taking their name from Aldous Huxley and Doors of Perception, where they were like. It was a lot of that idea of, like, we can use music to go and reach a different kind of realm or that there's something else that we can kind of access, you know, through this, through the idea. There's something there's something greater to tap into, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. I, I, I suppose that was the idea, although I never heard that in the Doors music. No? No. They never opened <laughs> any perceptions for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're, are you not, not a Doors fan? I'm not particularly a Doris fan. No, I, I know, there's so many bands that I just, to me, they I just don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, I could see how uh, Jim Morrison looked great in a pair of leather pants. I mean, he was sure, one, he sure. was one hot piece of ass, I guess you could say. <laughs> sure, in, sure. In, in his day, I mean, yeah, no, that's fair. He yeah, represented, yeah. you know, fair. like he was the archetype rock star and bad boy and bad behavior and Mm. and all that so i get chicks dig it man oh yeah i get that part of it but uh, the music i don't know it just uh it didn't it didn't light a fire under me (laughs) oh (laughs) boom nice nice well well played uh, I should have had the rim <laughs> shot ready, and uh, here I go. Damn it, Mitch. Uh, I'm sorry. You did not see that coming. Uh, no, much I like, didn't. Much like we hit him with the reverb. He hit us with the old doors pun. That's good. Uh, now, does that go for, like, a lot of the psychedelic music? Pink Floyd, uh, uh, well, you, you, suddenly you, Jefferson no, for me, Airplane, No, no, Pink Floyd, I, I got into them because right, they right. actually did go out. I mean, they actually, that, that track, Interstellar Overdrive, they got out there. I mean, they right. got beyond the beat and beyond the key. They really tried to, to push beyond something yeah. yeah, in this little tangible realm kind of thing. Yeah, I know? mean, to me, the doors, you know, the rhythm section always held it down. They, the rhythm section never stretched out. They never got into anything textural or, or so like a song. kinetic, you know. It just it was just like improvising on tired old chord changes. So kind of like a song, like maybe like uh, I guess the end or when the music's over, like those kind of songs. Which I'm thinking more like the long form Doors songs, you know, yeah, where they yeah. tried to really explore. It. None of those songs really like that would have been, I guess, when people look to the Doors, that's kind of their big attempt, you know, to do something. I guess in that realm. So none of those songs you would say really. For me. Yeah, yeah right. For my, you know, Your own taste and Yeah, stuff. my own aesthetic. You know, they, they kind of left me a little short, you know. Because I'm listening to Sun Ra. And I'm right. listening to Train. And I'm listening to Archie Shep and Cecil Taylor and Sonny Murray. And these guys are doing things with beats 
that are that are revolutionary and doing things with melodies and chords that are breaking all the rules and then you know a lot of the rock guys just kind of stuck stayed with the form right right well you you guys uh you played with a lot of those that whole era though of like big brother and the holding company and stuff yeah. and cream and that so what i mean were the, what kind of impressions did they leave on you then in that sense because that's that whole scene you know yeah. it's kind of i guess you guys kind of existed it sounds like on a different a different end of the spectrum, you know, in some regards, in that sense. Well, we were, um, you know, we were young and ambitious, and, <laughs> and, and uh, right out of the D, son, yeah, and and uh, and uh, arrogant, <laughs> and, um, and all good things for show business. Yeah, yeah and, great way to make a name for yourself in the old rock and roll game, and attitudinal. And uh, I'm putting attitudinal on the board. Put it on the board. We we have a board. It's just for sort of a a running tally of the things that have occurred. And and, uh, I guess we developed something of a resentment about the idea that people thought we couldn't be doing anything significant because we were from Detroit. Like hmm. you know, they make cars in Detroit. They don't. They don't make art in Detroit. You know, right, right. Art is made in San Francisco. Art is made in New York. Or art is made in Paris. You know, like especially kind of cutting edge art. You sure. know, art right. that was sure. really ahead of its time, and and not just art, but art that spoke to something much greater and much more profound. I guess. And thing, and you know? you know, we knew our history, and we knew all the great musicians that had come out of Detroit. You know, the Jones Brothers and. Just uh, the history of jazz in Detroit and Detroit's musical heritage. And we knew that the things, the ideas we were trafficking in um, had value to them and, yeah. and value on a scale with whatever anybody else had to say. We had something to say, too. Yeah. And we thought maybe our ideas might be a little more stretched out than theirs. So when all these bands would come to detroit the mc5 was the support the the war, the house band or oh, the right, right, support right. band right, for all the, the the grand ballroom at, right at the grandy ballroom grandy and ballroom. and we played there every weekend for 3 years oh, and wow. so everybody came through and had to play with us and <laughs> and so we you say had to everybody so we did you do your time with the mc5 <laughs> so after a while a lot of the bands would ask not to have us on the show because they didn't want to have to follow us Ah, right, Cause, right. Because we, you know, we we worked really hard on on putting on a show that was unlike anything else that was happening. Yeah. And right. our influences were uh, James Brown and Hard working man in show business, and, you and, know. And, and we're white rock guys, and we got big amps, and we got shiny clothes, and we're dancing, and we're <laughs> screaming and hollering, and 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 I think the I think the most significant thing was that we talked about the things that young people wanted to talk about directly right. we didn't we didn't beat around the bush you we didn't talk- put them in quiet rooms if you will no right, and, right. and and it wasn't about like uh you know that we were reproducing the blues or folk music it, it was about what are our concerns and those are people's concerns we're concerned about um the draft we're concerned about um, civil rights. We're right. concerned about drug laws. We're concerned about police brutality. Right. These are things that we were focused yeah, on. Yeah, the draft isn't, the, isn't an abstract thing in this context. It's a thing that you're constantly working to abolish yeah. in that sense. Sexual mores, you know. Right. Uh, and and uh, I, I think that all these other bands kind of, uh, you know, were one step removed. They, they talked 
through a filter of a cultural filter where we talk directly to people. Yeah, trying to and sneak it, around, be like, well, we can't say that; they won't play us on the radio, that yeah. kind of thing. And, and and we went right for it. We right. talked directly to people. So I, I think you know we we developed. A, uh, uh, I mean, that's where Kick Out the Jams came from, right. is we used to yell that at the other bands. They'd come through town and we'd say, kick out the jams or get off the stage. Right. That's what I, Mitch and I were kind of talking about this on the way up and, and just kind of just talking about some of the things that we wanted to, to touch on. But that whole idea of that, that phrase becoming what it is now, you know, and people just kind of yelling it out and the whole very rock and roll tradition mm-hmm. of words just becoming a very esoteric thing and losing their... Losing their kind of root meaning mm-hmm. or whatever, but it really is this kind of things that like when you, when you go to comedy shows, you don't yell out "Where are the jokes?" or anything. You know? <laughs> but I can imagine though, especially the idea that you're talking about about being from Detroit and trying to break into this uh, very kind of sheltered art scene of be they just sneer at you and like, what the mm-hmm. fuck can you bring to the table? Yeah, yeah. And people come to your house and they're supposed to be the big acts, and that's where you've been putting on these fucking shows yeah. and earning your keep and making a name for yourself, and they're just piddling around on stage and you would you would feel in that in your home turf was there that kind of idea like hey motherfuckers like you either play something or we're gonna go on there and blow your shit out of the water you know yeah, that, that's about the way we looked at it. I mean, we, we were competitive, you know. We, we, I mean, we wanted to prove we had something to prove, you know. Now, did did it, did it work the same? Where was it? Was it still considered like opening and closing act? Like you guys were the first act, or or at least before the main headliner mm-hmm. act, or mm-hmm. was it headliner and it didn't really matter the order? No, no, they, you know, the, it was the, still like the, that. the the uh, the feature act would. But in those days, we the the a night's music was uh, there'd be four sets. Or there might be uh, six sets. There might be Holy three shit. bands, wow. and we'd all play two sets each. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it might be like um, the James Cotton Blues Band, um, the MC5, and Big Brother and the Holding Company. Sounds like a hell of a chicken. And then uh, I would put, I would get a lot of ducats for that show, yo. For, for five dollars. <laughs> oh, oh shit, yo! I'm scalping everything, B. Yeah. I'm walking home. It's a new Gilded Age in my house. What's this scalping he's talking about? Hey, no, I'm cutting edge, baby. I'm scalping tickets at the cutting edge concert. You don't even know, don't worry about it. Yeah. Do you, we, did we, they did they call it first show, second show, or was people just kind of stand there and sort of watch just whatever they were? All night. Yeah, we yeah. we played with. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone came to Detroit, and I loved them. And I bet. that was a great. I mean, they would put on a show. And uh, was that kind of a one-upsmanship with with those guys? Or was it kind of? Did you have a competition to be like, all right, we know that they're coming in. Like Sly, were there certain bands kind of like Sly? You're like, all right, we already know that we're on another level for most people. Well, but. we didn't know about him until he got there. Right. I mean, we and and he did. Uh, we played three nights with them, and we all did three sets a night. It was just their band and our band. Oh, and wow. he opened and closed every set they did with dance to the music. So by the end of that weekend, you had that song tattooed on your DNA. <laughs> dance to the music. <laughs> Every fucking set. <laughs> and then, so the next night, MC5 covers Dance to the Music. <laughs> I, I, dug, I dug them because they sounded great. They, they got down. They they sweated. Yeah. They danced. I mean, they put on a show. Yeah, to yeah. my idea, of what a show is. Yeah. Well, we uh, to to some degree we had that in Phoenix in the uh, a smaller like industrial music scene. There was a band called N Seventeen, and any band that came through there that was you know goth or industrial, they were the. I mean, this was the opening act. 
And that band by themselves would draw 300 people yeah. at any small club. And, um, you know, it, it, they, never, they, they seemed content with, like, no, we're just, we're cool. We'll just be the biggest thing in Phoenix. And they never, like, went outside. They'd come to California and everybody was like, who the fuck are you? And they'd be like, we're going back to Phoenix. So, I mean, when, in your situation, getting out of Detroit, did that come from, like, label interest thing? Or did you say, fuck it, we're just going out there? How, how did that work out? Well, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I meant, like... In fairness. Yeah. Well, it, I, in, in the old long view. <laughs> it was always the plan. The plan was right, always right. to, you know... Win, win over our neighborhood, win over our city, right. and then export that to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Because you get on tour with Cream and Big Brother and the Holding Company, right? And so that's how does that step kind of? That's what you're asking, right? Mitch? Well, the like, ultimate you... goal, of course, is getting to Mars. <laughs> right. Yes. Always on that. Which track. I hear you yeah. knocking on the door. And in, in fact, the the last record deal we tried to negotiate was with a, a notorious record business gangster uh, named Morris Levy. At Roulette Records, okay. and he didn't want to give us any money, of course. Uh, but he said, "We'll do another live album." So we suggested the MC5 live on Saturn. <laughs> 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 but what happened was, um, uh, we did well in in the industrial Midwest. You know, we go down to Cleveland or Cincinnati. We did great in New York, Boston, sure, Chicago, sure. like all, all the kind of heart heartland. Uh, uh, and we made some inroads into Florida, and we were doing well in Texas. But by the time we came to California, the hippies, they just didn't want to, they just, no. Nah. Nothing uh-uh. to do with you. Yeah. Uh-uh. 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 Too much, much taint. Uh-uh. 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 Right, right. I mean, when we came out with with spangly clothes and martial amps, and can't we just with... hug out the jams, man? Can we <laughs> yeah, do that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can we vision out the... <laughs> <laughs> Visualize the jams. Yeah, we're going to visualize. You know what I mean? Just chip on these jams just a little bit, right? Let the jams kick on you. And can we drop the whole motherfucker thing and just be like, friend? Hug out the jams, friend. Right. You know, we didn't really connect it in San Francisco or Seattle or LA, really. Really? Seattle kind of surprises me. But you've got to remember, this is back before. That's true. This is like Ash, the whole Ash. I don't mean because of the grunge scene. I just mean. Because uh, you know, Seattle and, and Portland both have that kind of weird. It's like a, there's the uh, you know subversive youth and the woodsman are like the two kind of clashing cultures, both in Portland and Seattle. It was pretty hippie you know I mean? in those days. Yeah, it, it was pretty pretty uh, peace and love and mm. they, they flowers weren't... and rainbows and blow bubbles and so a lot of talk no action i got it i got uh, it but you end up you end up, the, you guys got the rolling stone cover though at what at some point though right yeah. so how did like how like it's weird though to hear you talk about like the like not being accepted by that element of the culture and yet there was some sort of cuz rolling stone had a, has a weird place at that time you know it's still kind of emerging as it's as a kind of cultural kind of thing and everyone took it seriously right so it, the, it was good journalism i mean yeah to, i mean so to to hear sort of hear the sort of culmination of we're trying to break out of Detroit, you know, we know that we're hitting in certain regions here and regions there, and sort of the exact opposite, really, of Rolling Stone's demographic or target audience at the time, and then you kind of collide with that, and then what the 
what ends up happening from there, you know, with Rolling Stone? How did that get received, I guess, by those? Well, it, it was tough because the the writer they sent out to do that story never smoked reefer before. Fantastic. And we smoke reefer <laughs> nonstop. Smoke weed every day. All day, every day. That's from... still Teddy's motto. <laughs> Well, then you know. I mean, and if you do it all the time, uh, you're used to it, and it's a nice place to be. Hey, man, it ain't but bad. this guy, he got he got too high. Oh, man, I've, I've known those people. They, like, they just freak out. This oh, guy no, here. I haven't been. No, I don't do but, that. But, like, no. they just, their whole world melts down in front of them. And he wrote this article that was kind of like a cartoon cartoon version of what he experienced. Like, he hung out with us for a few days, came to one of the gigs, and it was like, he made us look like buffoons, you know, oh. like like, and uh, uh, they, what what happened a lot of times with the MC5 because we came on so strong, we engendered criticism from our own our own community, like the other leftists, yeah, the like whole the left, the hardcore, the Marxists, uh, and the SDS people, and and I know all these guys today, and we've right. all talked about we're all cool now, yeah. but back then. Like they they viewed us as like the revolutionary hype, mm-hmm. you know. Like you you couldn't really be who you said you were. There's no way that you could possibly attain the level that you've been given or that right. you set out for yourself. Yeah, or that we claim. Yeah, right. Yeah, we, we say that we're the real thing. We're we're revolutions. We're devoted to to uh, radical change. And you're coming out of a place like Detroit too, as well, which is a very different place to stake that claim from, which, I mean, nothing really has changed in right, that regard. Right, yeah. today for Detroit. No, if you were trying still, to, we yeah. had our, our last guest, Harry Moreau's, uh, yeah, yeah, guest, same thing. he's a comedian out of Detroit and he just came back from being out there for a while. And we were just kind of talking about how things are, you know, and the climate there and how it's sadly not very different in a lot of ways. It's but, tough. It's tough uh, yeah. But I mean, it, it's got, it's got to be tough then to, to have that kind of label uh, placed on you and to place it on yourself and to constantly be working at it and never really get any respect. And I know as someone who kind of reads a lot about that era now, the things you're talking about with the different groups and the different fractions of the left are, mm-hmm. are at that time, it's really what ends up being a very big splintering period, you know, when the left is still kind of regroup, regrouping and trying to, you know, get a, a more cohesive element, I would say, today. But that was the time when it went from... Well, we made a lot of mistakes, you know. We uh, Embracing violence was a terrible mistake. Weather and, underground. And, yeah, and because, you know, once you set those images and those ideas in motion... You can't control the outcome, mm-hmm. and and I've talked about this at length with uh, my dear friend Mark Rudd from the Weather Underground, and uh, w- the conclusion that he came to was that embracing violence, uh, we really um, discredited a legitimate anti-war movement. We discredited a legitimate civil rights movement, and in a lot of ways. Did the government's work for them? Did the FBI's work for them um, by just, um, you know, uh, creating a distraction and and taking attention away from uh, an actual um, nonviolent mass movement, which is really the only way that things ever change. Right. And and one of those, I feel like a good example of that um, is with, maybe Fred Hampton, what happened with him and after his his death happened and, and the way that it went down there and I know the reaction from a lot of groups on the left was bombings and it was it was a much more kind of like the stakes went up. Yep. 
And it was, and it, and kind of what you're saying, it was a real opportunity to say, all right, we can respond to this in a way that really, you know, identifies us as a very different and distinct kind of movement, or we can just. And we were warned, you know, the, right. uh, Mark told me that the, the weathermen, the Cubans said, don't go with violence. Hmm. The Vietnamese said mass nonviolent social movement. Even the Black Panther Party said, don't go with the guns. We're going with the free breakfast program. Right. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what, that's what they were doing. <laughs> the I, guns, I, you know. guns got them death squads yeah. all across America. Yeah. I mean, police departments murdered Black Panthers across the country because of their uh, position of picking up the gun. Right. And, and the thing that the, the breakfast thing is interesting because I know, uh, with, with J. Edgar Hoover, the, the, you know, the movie that just came out recently and I saw that one. And I feel like what was really disappointing about it is that there's none of the, None of the fact that Hoover just straight up used his position to just be like, I don't give a fuck what they are doing. We are going to give cause mm -hmm. for a lot of things in the sense of the breakfast example is very good. I mean, you know, they had people and they're like, listen, all the Black Panthers are doing is giving breakfast out in the neighborhoods. And Hoover was like, fuck that noise. Mm -hmm. Just make it happen. And this is because you're saying because they had an open display of guns in addition to that or in as a, a in a separate act. And so they uh, FBI and so on and so forth uh, related the two. When, when you when you embrace violence as a strategy. Yeah. Um, it's it's doomed <laughs> because um, they have legitimacy. Yeah. They, they yeah. have they have. Um, uh, battleships, sure, and aircraft sure. carriers, and tanks, and and the law—they have yeah. everything on their side. And if you threaten them with that stuff, they will use everything that they have against you. Yeah. And yeah. and why did we do it? Good question. You know, we were young. We were stupid. young and angry. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were frustrated. That's uh, but it, that's it the seemed that's, like a good idea at the time. But it's it's also this sort of a primal thing. That's your first instinct is to sort of go violent with with when you're angry. You know what I mean? As a kid, it's not. It's a lot of like, Meh! you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's it's. I think that is just. You know, you see people peacefully protesting. You go, that doesn't do anything. You know what I mean? I could. I can see how that would be kind of the first thing you'd think but it's, it's it, also romantic yeah it's and, true. and we all grew up on movies and television <laughs> true. Very and, true. and you see the shootout <laughs> oh they winged me oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never take me live cowboys yeah but that the brave heart would be a terrible movie if it was just like we're gonna talk about this <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. but like, that ain't real not... life in real yeah, life yeah. you know people really get killed and yeah you yeah, know getting sure. shot is it's not a joking um, it's it's not funny it's not romantic it's uh it's, it's messy horrific it's, yeah it's traumatizing it's, it's a, yeah it's a it's a horrific uh thing to experience and uh so so i think a lot of those Mistakes uh, snowballed on the MC5 as a rock band. Yeah, and and really, I think at a you know a certain point the 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 business of rock music said, you know these guys, uh, I don't think we want to be involved with them anymore. Right, yeah. So there's a couple. Yeah. So that kind of the couple of things like mentioning the guns and stuff because I know at some of the MC5 shows you guys did you guys come on stage with. Did you ever come on stage with guns? I think I read somewhere, like, some of the shows, they said that you guys came on with stuff, but I think maybe that's just... No, Ted, only Ted Nugent does that Okay, nowadays. all right, yeah. All right, fair enough, then. <laughs> guns and crossbows. <laughs> guns, yeah, crossbows, yeah. and ignorance. Yeah, um, sure. Well, I mean, he's got that in spades. 
But so, so the live show. Hey guys, right? I'm gonna play the one song you know. All right, let's do that. Uh, so like you guys, you guys do kick out the jams as a live album, right? And that, so what is the decision making behind that? Cause Mitch and I were kind of talking about this on the ride over and it was just, it's interesting. There's some, there's some, but Mitch, you, your point that you were making. Yeah. It was, I, it, and I talked to you about this before. It's like that whole, where I was like, if I hear a live act, uh, I'm going, ah, I really like this. I'd love to hear the studio version. And vice versa, if I, if I really love what's going on in the studio, I'm like, I've got to hear this live, you know what I mean? Uh, hear the different energy and things like that. Um, but you guys didn't revisit the studio. I would think that a uh, record label would immediately suggest that, like, hey, let's do that again, but in studio or things like that. And you apparently never went that route, never... Uh, either you never had that conversation or you said, no, we got other stuff to do. I, I think that... Uh... Jack Holtzman and Bruce Botnick realized that the MC5 was so undisciplined that, <laughs> that recording this band properly in a studio was going to be really expensive, really painful. It was going to take a long time and it was going to cost a lot of money. Right. And so it was just much easier to say, you guys are a great live band. We're going to record you live. Yeah, and it's, so it right. was over two nights or two mm -hmm. nights, right? And so what, I mean, because when you listen to it, I mean, it does, it does sound just like a night, like a, just a feverish, just uncontrollable, just barely chaotic, but just. Like, it's one of that just controlled chaos where yeah. you're like, no, I got it. Don't worry. Like, I know it seems like it's all going to fall apart at any moment. But trust me, at the end, it's all going to come together. And you're going to be like, damn, that shit was beautiful. And it's just, and it's like, so I, I guess I was always wondering what, over the course of those two nights, was there anything majorly that changed between recording on the first night and the second night that you were like, all right, on the second night, we're going to try and aim differently? Or was it just... No, it, it was uh, all of a piece, you know, and I think that we were just, um, you know, I've I've said this before, and and uh, it's it's my personal feeling that um, they they didn't catch us on two good nights. <laughs> <laughs> um, the MC Five was incredibly inconsistent as a band, um, and it was mostly down to the rhythm section. The rhythm section was pretty loose and um uh so on a good night it was fucking cosmic i mean it was <laughs> it was spiritual Sun on rock. a good night yeah it was it was it was life-changing on a good night on a bad night it could have it was a real train wreck <laughs> sometimes it would just be like whoa and and the nights that we recorded i mean they told me if you don't like the recording, we'll just record a couple more nights until we get the one you want. And I said, I don't like those. I'd like to keep recording. And everybody else said, no, no, they're great. We're going with that. <laughs> then, all so right. now, okay, then. now these days when uh, when you have like uh, various benefit concerts and stuff like that, that's when Mike goes all funked. Um, when, you have, when you're doing like various benefit concerts and, for instance, Rage Against the Machine is like, hey, come play Kick Out the Jams with us. Do you feel, in a sense, that you're like, oh, I get to redo this? This is like a yeah, redo. yeah. Every time I do it, I'm making up for it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I owe you this. I owe you. The, I gotta play this shit right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw. I mean, I've seen some videos and stuff like that, and they. I mean, it just it's one of those things. The audience goes nuts, and you kind of go, "Do they even know?" Well, fuck it. I mean, how can you not really? And and. You, you never see even Zach go that nuts, really. Like, he doesn't shake his head that often on stage. There's a lot of, like, pointing. 
you see him do kick out the jams, his head is about to fall off. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he gets, they, uh, he looks they, like he gets pretty excited. I'm guessing they, uh, I mean, cause you do a lot of shows with Tom, but did they talk to you before they, they did the cover on, uh, Renegades when they were going to do kick out the jams? Did they, how did that whole process happen? Oh yeah. T- Tom said, Wayne, would you come over and show me the, how to play the song? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I gave him a, a quick, uh, primer on the uh, chord progression. And of course, he did a pretty good job of it. Yeah, I mean that was one of those when I when I I got that album and I like I got to that track on there and I was just like I got very excited about it. I was like, yes, this is. But they're not my, you know. I love Tom and I love Rage and I think the Henry Rollins and the Bad Brains did a great version too. But my favorite is a band from either they're from Australia or New Zealand. They're called Deep Street Soul, hmm. and if you can pull it up. We should play that one for the people. Oh, there it's it is. A, there it is. One of the first things that comes up. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is your this is your favorite. This is my favorite version of Kick Out the Jam. Excluding all of your own riffs, of course. No, no. All across the board. This oh, is wow. the one. This is the one. <laughs> all right. The, the video will probably be a little skippy, but oh, there's no video, so fuck it. Pretty much entirely all you know. Oh, wow. I can, yep. I can hear it. <laughs> For people at home that are just listening, Wayne is uh, He's like a cutting, right cutting a, a very fine rug over there. Wow. Is that tambourine action? So now, have you have you seen them do this live at all? No, there's a there have is. Have you a, met them? Anything? No, I wrote we wrote to each other on on the internets. There is a um, <laughs> there is a, some video of them playing in a club doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So scoped it out. Wow, that's because because really what they're doing is they're revealing that the MC5 was actually a soul band. Right, that's a lot. You know, you're, with you're electric guitar. A lot of those influences are all a lot of soul influences mm-hmm. that you guys came up at, the, at that same kind of time. Let's... All right, all right. I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> that's good. I like it. I like it. It's good stuff. Uh, so uh, uh, we're at now. I forgot where we're at. Uh, we're speaking of well, the, we, uh, we're, the we're, first we're, album, we're the line, and all up, that. Closing in on the demise of the MC. So kick out the jams, and then you've got the whole closing got the, in on. We're barely talking about the <laughs> no, first album. The brouhaha of of the kick out the jams motherfucker with yep. uh, with it's uh, it's Hudson's is uh, with like that whole you took out the ad right. Yeah. With, you didn't feel like the Electra was getting. I mean, they just kind of weren't getting the support, and it was was it Fuck Hudson's, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and it had Electra's logo in there, and then that leads to the MC5 being dropped from Electra, right? 
unprofessional conduct. That was the official corporate line. Yeah, unprofessional. Which I mean, come on, man. That's the same label that Doors were on, amongst others. Uh, but yeah, Doors, you know, and they stood behind him for like Jim Morrison's going to get naked on stage while he's on acid and fuck a groupie. Yeah, but yeah, but they also had numerous top ten hit records. Right, and right. Made millions and millions of dollars for them, and and uh, and the bad behavior didn't show up till later. We had trouble right from the beginning, yeah. and and uh, and in fact, when the, the motherfucker in the title, like we recorded two versions of "Kick Out the Jams." Mm-hmm. One was "Kick Out the Jams," brothers and sisters, because we knew "Kick Out the Jams," motherfucker, would never be a hit record on the radio. Right? And we may play, but we're not dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so we said, put this single out and wait till the single gets as high in the charts as it's going to get. Wait till it even comes down before you release the album, which has the motherfucker version on mm-hmm. it. But once we have a hit single, they won't be able to stop us because yeah. we'll be a hit band then. You know, now we, you owe us, baby. We'll be <laughs> we'll be accepted. You know? right, right. And what happened was the the uh, singles took off and they they it was number two in Detroit, it was number six in New York, it was number fifteen in Chicago. All the uh AM radio stations were playing Kick Out the Jams, brothers and sisters, and Electra rushed the album out because uh, they thought they were losing sales. So they rushed it out. We said don't do it. They did it anyway. And of course when these kids came home and put the album on and their parents heard this kick out the jams, motherfucker <laughs> Public enemy number one. Shit hit the fan. <laughs> and uh, they started. And that, you know. that back then wasn't the kind of thing where, I mean, it seems today like it's that, it's that old, there's, there's no bad press or whatever. So controversy of that sort back then was not a huge album booster. It was instead like, uh, oh, this is embarrassing. We better hide this or you, what? You can't even conceive of, of <laughs> no, I in today's climate when motherfucker is uh, required. Right, right. Know, yeah, yeah, or it's yeah. it's required to sort of push and push and push the yeah. boundary. But what kind of where was Hudson's in terms of in terms of stores and prestige for them to be like we are not going to carry this record? Is that like Walmart telling you to go fuck yourself? Well, they were they were they clearly had a conservative um, ideological. Well, I meant I meant it's like that whole thing of of bands saying like, well, we released two albums. One of them's for Walmart. Because if you just don't sell at Walmart, you're not going platinum it, or whatever. Actually, right? no, it's not it, like it wasn't even a consideration. I I never even thought that something like that was possible. That the record that Hudson's, who who I had been shopping in all my life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> would not carry my record. Right, I, right. I just thought, you know, no, it, but I mean, is that is it a chain store? Is it like a small indie? Oh shop no, it was kinda? a huge um, department store. It's kind of okay, like a Sears okay. or a JC Penney yeah. kind of thing. All right, yeah. okay, okay. So kind of a little yeah. more high endy than. And a Sears or like J.C. Penney, like, like Macy's, like Macy's, yeah. Okay. okay, and they had everything, you know, furniture and clothes and tools, except and, for the MC5. Yep, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they drew the line there. Uh. So, so then all these guys, you know, like they had these record rating services who all pick kick out the jams. Well, the following week, they all said you got to stop playing the MC5 record because the album contains an obscenity and uh, there's 
you know, kids were being arrested for selling it. What? Parents were... The kids were being arrested for... Were they like black market sales for MC5 records? Yeah. That kind like of thing? in head shops, you know, they were selling the record and the parents would get out up in arms and they'd go complain and the police like would the go... Like the pornography over. of music. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, no, very much. Today. I mean, there's I'm, nothing... That, there's nothing here. equivalent in terms of the music. I don't know what you would have to release today music-wise for someone to be arrested for, for bootlegging it out of the back of a shop. Maybe nah, almost impossible. I couldn't think of it. It would I mean, be something that everyone could agree upon was, was worth arresting, I think, for the, for the most part. I, I guess. I mean, uh, you guys... Sex with animals? Uh, no, even that wouldn't... Uh, um, I don't think so. I mean, Mayhem, a uh, uh, black metal band out of Norway, uh, you know, they have a history of, of people in the band killing other people, killing themselves. One of their album covers, the front cover, is a former lead singer... Uh, after he had shot himself in the head. Oh! So it's like that's their front cover. <laughs> like, hey, that's what we're doing. Damn. Uh, yeah, kicking Damn. out the bullets. and uh, Kicking re- out the brains. And then the, the other lead singer just got out of jail like last year, and he's a neo-Nazi who stabbed the bassist in the head with a Bowie knife, like through the skull. Wow. And uh, and then that is a hardcore scene, man. We were such lightweights. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just saying, like yeah. again, I literally new yeah, age radicals. I don't think like there this. is a. I can't believe you never heard of mayhem. But I uh, mean, I've heard. Know, I think know. now that you're mentioning some of the details, I feel like. And I've then come there's then there's like the uh, uh, the, the the what's the fucking band I can't think of uh, 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 the mentors uh, as they call themselves rape rock, which is like twelve tracks of you know I'm gonna rape you, I'm gonna rape you. You know, again, all you said was kick out of jams, motherfucker. Now they're, you know. I can't imagine what the reaction would be for. I mean, those people would have probably been burned to the sake. Imagine oh, if that would have been. If that would have been what the MC5 was pushing. You, there'd be no, there'd be no straight refit interview right now. You <laughs> would not. It would have been a very be, different uh, path. So they, uh, so they say. Now this is the thing, also, especially in a climate like that, it surprises me they didn't go. Well, let's put out a slightly different version that has the kick out of the Jazz Brothers and Sisters. They did, especially since you already recorded. Oh, okay. That's what, that's what they they came to us and they said, um, Wayne, the the rack jobbers are having albums returned. Um, we're losing sales. Can we put out a clean version of the album? And we said no. You'd make us look like chumps if you did that, right. you know. Like we said, this is who we are. You agreed to the deal. Yeah. We didn't. We don't expect you to run the revolution. We expect you to sell records. We'll do the revolution. You sell records. Yeah. We are who we say we are. And they said, "Well, you sure?" And we said, "Yeah, you can't do it." And they said, "Well, of course, we'll we'll abide by your wishes." And then they went back to New York and put it out anyway. Of course. Uh. Age old and Taylor. then fired us. Ah. And then you get, and then you get, so you get. In, in retrospect, do you wish that you'd have said, "Yeah, fuck it, whatever." Well, it didn't matter. Well, because that's what they did anyway. I know. Yeah. I'm just saying, but you'd have been on board or something. I don't know. Well, that's just the worst possible, the best just... possible way that it could have gone down, man. You go down fighting and swigging. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, I mean, if I, someone's gonna sandbag you, I literally, you gotta, get, you gotta I can go remember... sandbag with your dignity. We, we, we did, we did go down swinging. Yeah. I mean, and... I, I can, I can remember mid '90s seeing Nirvana's In Utero album at Walmart, and I, I just remember thinking this back cover looks very strange because if you remember the original In Utero, on the back cover had all this weird, you know. Little plastic fetuses and stuff, and the back cover of the Walmart was just a big flower. And, uh, <laughs> and rape me was uh, was replaced with waif me, W A I F. 
I still have no idea what that I don't get down to that, man. You know, poetic you know, license. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know. Uh, Bad like, poetic. No, trust, they trust me. They won't listen hard enough to get the difference. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know. I guess they do. So they still do that today. Or or they did it back. I don't know. I guess that's a long time ago now. I'm an old man. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So that's that was. So you said fuck Hudson's. And then they said, hey, let's maybe try to. So it's a combination of things. It wasn't just that you said fuck Hudson's. And they're like, oh, well, you got to go. No, it, it, it was a, it was a whole. Uh... You know, Quagmire, basically. Yeah, we were just, um, we were unmanageable. You know, we were right. we were incorrigible, and we were, I think, by by all reasonable standards, uh, insane. And uh, we weren't good little soldiers, and we didn't. I mean, would we, you have considered yourself insane in retrospect? Now, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one day I found myself running a record company. I started a little label, me and my wife. And I thought back on it. I thought, I wouldn't have signed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is because, you, and as you mentioned, you do run your own label now. And you guys do a lot of, uh, at least uh, you, what your wife was telling me, is a majority of your business is in music licensing more than anything. Actually, we've, uh, we've, let the, we've dissolved the label. The label. We, I, I'm not sure what a record label is anymore, and, and there. it it didn't. We got in a little late. Yeah. In fact, our first uh, release was a record I did with uh, Brian James from The Damned. Oh, okay. We, we put a band together, uh, and uh, it came out the week of 9/11. Oh. <laughs> tough <laughs> timing yeah. was yeah, not a good time. <laughs> tough time to move. Yeah. You and, and Slayer, what are you gonna do? Yeah, and uh, and uh, and Jay Z. And re- and re- the record business was kind of like dwindling down to nothing at that point anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't want to be in the label business any, anyway. Right. Uh, in here, I was about to ask, you have a lot of, uh, you probably still get it even with music licenses. You get a, like, a lot of egos where you got to like, pull up a sign and go, listen, I've been on that side. Like, you got to realize who you're dealing with or do you no, not find too much. that there? I mean, I don't, I don't do it. She does most of the licensing. Okay. And, and, uh, <laughs> so you don't have to uh, deal with the whippersnappers. No, generally people are pretty happy to see their stuff get used somewhere and get a payday. Yeah, yeah. A little more mature these days, huh? A little more business-minded or something. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, like they grew, they've grown up in a much more savvier time, I think. Yeah. And, and you can't sell records. Right. So you, can't, you yeah. can't make any money selling records. So you got to get... If you're going to do this for a living, you got to get paid some kind of way. You can't really sell the records. Um, you can't really get the traditional avenue until you go through. I mean, you know, like you've got to pay your dues kind of now and then reach a point where you can sell an album. Like an yeah, album yeah, isn't yeah. a thing that you... like. Well, first we sell the album, then we get everything. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Now it's kind of like, all right, we get a single here, and then I maybe get a video here, and then I get in here, and then now I get an album, you know? Or like maybe not even an album, but I get an EP, and then I finally get a deal, and then I get an album. It's kind of, I don't know, it seems more similar, I guess, to the the older grind of music as well, too, because things have less value. So you've kind of got to, like, generate. I'm thinking more of, like, people like Lana Del Rey, who people who end up on Saturday Night Live performing now, and they are they're only performing off the strength of an EP, mm-hmm. and it's right, kind of right. it's kind of weird to see like, well, like all right, you're on SNL, like who the fuck are you still? Right, you right. haven't even had a full length album yet, and then the album comes out, and then it's still kind of like, well, how did you even reach this part of the cultural consciousness sure, yet? Sure. So well, that whole middle, um, that whole um, training ground, you know, that's all been right. it's, it doesn't exist anymore. It's the that the part of the music industry where the A and R person exists, right. which is just which is just decimated. It doesn't exist doesn't anymore, exist. which is a travesty. I feel like. So if you come up with an idea for an act and it's a compelling idea, 
what few gatekeepers there are that are fronting these big cor the handful of big corporations sure. they're looking and they, if if you're willing they'll yeah. grab you right away and you're right they'll they'll plop you right on national television and they'll they'll try to make it work right. i mean they're right. like well like we'll just build them up as we go we don't have the we don't have the luxury of the time that it no. takes right. for a group like you guys like the mc5 to go from just being in detroit and being a, a house band every weekend for over the course of years yep. and then all of a sudden you are playing with cream and big brother and the holding company and then you're you're starting to rub shoulders with some of the people that are on the cover of Rolling Stone. And the next thing you know, you're on the cover of Rolling Stone and you've got albums and then you've got, you know, but then you kind of have a time period to like, by the time you reach a point where a, like a record label thing, like kick out the jams comes mm -hmm. from and they're like, mm -hmm. change it up or, or go, you know, mm -hmm. you're like, well, fuck it. We've been, we've been doing this. We know who we are. Mm -hmm. We, we can, we'll find somewhere else to go, you know? No, And you, you know, you learn your job skills, you learn how to, how to write a song, you learn how to make a record, you learn how to put on a show. Yeah. Um, there's there's no, yeah, that doesn't exist anymore either. I mean, w we can make anybody sound great. Right, We yeah, can take yeah. any yeah, any young singer-songwriter. Anybody up a talent studio. competition. That's why, that's <laughs> anyway, why I really, can, I, I used to get really, them up. I used to get really angry about all that American Idol shit because I was like, I just, it's that thing of, you know, the people were crying and shit and they was, you know, like, this means a lot and all this. And it was just like one of those things where I'm going, you are given one of the biggest stages on the planet Earth in the history of time. Yeah. And you haven't played gig one. Right. Like, there are, you know what I mean? You, you, any other time you'd have to go through 30 years of just getting right. shit kicked out of you and, and just people tearing you apart to even get a smidgen of that. And here it's like, okay. Sing for us, pal. And it's, I just, that whole thing bothered me, that instant, you know, the gratification, if you will, and the instant stardom. And, uh, and I just thought, like, and that's your, these are supposed to be your idols. Like, there's no hard work. It's just like a couple of judges said, yeah, cool. And like, I, I but I guess, I but that's, I don't think that's it sort works, of though. the way, it, yeah, I don't think it does. I, what, who are, all, who are among, for, I mean, for how many people have been on those shows and have, sustained you know actually stepped off and found a way to have a career and sustained it compared to all the other ones that were on those shows that just well i'm finding it seems to me that like if you think of the last uh maybe 15 years even of like just acts that have come out that uh sustain and stuck around uh most of them are ones that where uh, they they continuously do side projects and stuff. Jack White mm -hmm. comes to mind. Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm, what I mean? Mm -hmm. Here's a you know when I first heard uh, "Fell in Love with a Girl," good song, but I didn't think like, yeah, we're still gonna be talking about this in twenty years or whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't think that. I, I think I, I saw the video and the song at the same time, which is why I was like, I don't know who this is, but mm -hmm. I feel like this guy's gonna stick around for a while. I didn't know that. Uh, I mean, I don't know. He's got all his different side projects and stuff like that, and now he's you know it's uh, doing also his first Detroit. solo record, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, he, uh, which is a great record. Good album, good album. He was he was uh, in a band in Detroit. I went through <laughs> when I was touring on my uh, some of my Epitaph records, and there were a couple local bands. And this one band kept calling up saying, "We want we want to open for Wayne. We want to great, great. You got the gig. You know? <laughs> and, and, That's uh, all it takes, kids. Yeah, really. <laughs> and uh, uh, don't and call me getting this, his number. Just this, go through other channels. This this, this this kid Jack White. He was like. He was just really a sweet guy and a big fan and all that. And then 
a year or two later, I started hearing about this White Stripes. And then when I heard the music on the radio, I said, this is going to work because it didn't sound like anything. It was, yeah, it yeah. was a original voice. Yeah. And yeah. that's always to me, the, the goal, the, the, you know, I want to hear somebody tell me their story, their way. I don't want to hear, you know, retreads of other stories. I yeah. want to hear your way of telling me your story. And he had a sound, those records, everything about him was unique. Yeah. But yeah. he had done that to that, the way he did it, you know, the, so much the power out of two people. It worked. It Incredible. just worked. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really terrific. And, and you're right. He has continued to reinvent himself. Yeah. Just on his own creativity. He follows yeah. his own music. Yeah, it was on his own terms. I mean, yeah. Jack White has had a, a very interesting career evolution as a rock star. And especially, I mean, the White Stripes come at a very major status in terms mm -hmm. of modern day rock, if you mm -hmm. want to say yeah, that. Yeah. But he hasn't been a traditional rock star, if you will. He's And now he's, I feel like only now is he reaching some sort of cultural place where people are kind of like, oh, Jack White has kind of done a lot of shit over mm -hmm. the years, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like he's a legitimized artist now. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, and now it's kind of like like you look back and you're like, damn, Jack White actually put together a whole lot of – I mean it's it's uh, Seven Nation Army. You know, I don't think people realize that that riff is that is that oh, 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 that Jack White riff that is just the universal soccer anthem in yeah. how many countries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's that – that's Jack White, Seven Nation Army, the opening – I don't know anything about soccer. Oh, Mitch. You seem really excited. You're a soccer fan or you just know No, that? no, no. I'm just... a Jack White fan. Oh, okay. So you just knew that. Okay. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's, it's that, it sounds, you know, it's a sort of a winking nod of a bass line at the opening of, of Seven Yeah, no, Army, I mean, that's but, one of the, yeah, I yeah, love, that's but it's, one it's, of the best riffs. You in, know, but that, that riff is time. like, you know, the, it's like, it's a big chant at a lot of soccer stadiums. It's just kind of interesting, though, that that, it, even there's college football stadiums that kind of got in on the same mm -hmm, thing or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's. I mean, Jack White has a very weird place that almost his rock identity is disconnected from, I guess is what I would say, you know. He's a very creative guy, very, very creative, and and, and uh, doesn't limit himself. You know, he wants to start a band, starts a band. Right, right. Does that for a while, and, you know, wants to do some soundtrack stuff, he does some soundtrack. Then I want to start sure, another sure. band, I'll start another band. Right. And I'm going to do this. Uh, work with the Insane Clown Posse, I'm going to work with the Insane Clown <laughs> yeah, Posse. Yeah. For whatever reason. Uh, I like him a lot. I think he's terrific. Are you guys collaborated and, on some stuff recently, or just kind of no, I just stayed know, friends kind of thing? Yeah, stayed of friends, and and he he uh, he said some nice stuff about uh, my work, and you know, always gave the MC5 props, and you know, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, you treaded that path. I mean, you know what I mean? It would be kind of, I would imagine, in some ways, he would even probably say like there wouldn't be a White Stripes without that. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, he's very generous. <laughs> no, I don't so, want to yeah, say that. Uh, I can't. Uh, I don't want to go that far. But <laughs> right, right, right. It's it's funny because it was after I met you that I realized I had a song uh, from a, a Ramones tribute album. Uh, the song's Ramones the same. Yes. And there was the uh, Bonzo goes to Bonzo Bitburg, goes yeah. to Broadway, Brooklyn, Bit Bitburg. I'm trying to remember what the hell it was. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. I, I, you'd know better than I would. I don't know why. I... <laughs> And I just thought it was such a. I remember when I listened to it, I was like, "This is the weirdest song on the album." You know what I mean? And it, it was a relatively normal song, but I mean, just uh, because it was so like it was like a spoken word song. It was. Uh, do, do people come to you with that, or how does that work? Do they go like, "Oh, hey, Wayne once covered a, a Ramon song. We should use that." You know? 
No, usually the producers just try to put together a eclectic group of artists and and uh, some, and they call me up. So you know, I'm happy to do it. I I like doing weird shit. Did they did they pick the song <laughs> for you or did you pick it? They, I think they pick. I don't even remember. Oh. So what? So what is this? This is uh, Bonzo goes to Broadway. Uh, it's on the songs. Ramones the same. It's a basically an album of covers. Better call the law when you're gonna turn yourself in. You're a politician. My favorite part is when it gets to the chorus. Hitler's children. Bonzo goes to Bitburg out for a cup of tea. So watching on TV somehow really bothered me. Drinking all the bars in town for extended foreign policy. Pick up the pieces. I don't know how familiar you are with the Ramones, Teddy, but I, I got, I've got, I've dabbled, Mitch. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh it is Bitburg. For some reason on here it's labeled Broadway. Yeah, so comparing that with you know the original Ramones track, it's which is going to be probably eight thousand times faster and thirty seconds long. One, two, three, four. Or maybe not. I don't know. I don't think I've ever heard this song. Now that I think about it. Oh, there you go. Good times. <laughs> yeah, so I I was uh I enjoyed the hell out of that. That was uh so I mean, do you do a lot of those kind of like small one-off projects people call you and go, "Hey, why don't I need this?" I've or done a few it... of them. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're nice. I did a Johnny Cash one and Ooh. I did a George Harrison and What was the Johnny Cash song? It was called um there were two. One was um, the ballad of Ira Hayes, hmm. and I had uh, what was his name, the American Indian activist, an actor, come in and do the vocal. Uh, Just want to note, he used for the record, he used American Indian. Yeah, so yeah. I think the debate is forever settled. Man. There you go. I was going to say Leonard Peltier, but it probably isn't. No, it wasn't him. Leonard. Leonard's yeah, not yeah. available. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard's Sadly. otherwise uh, engaged. I think we might have known if he had dropped something on the and, track. Uh, the other one was uh, the Johnny Cash, uh, One Piece at a Time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. Uh, yeah. Those are all, it's fun, you know, because you're just stepping off into the unknown. Yeah, yeah. Try to come up with something. There was, Amusing. Uh, I think it was Spin. I'm trying to remember who it was. Some some magazine or other, at least online magazine, perhaps does does a thing or did a thing for almost a year, where every week they would have a band in and they would cover a song from another band. It was always a different band, a different song, and uh, some of them were really good. There was one band that covered Neutral Milk Hotel, um, uh, uh, Two Headed Boy. I think it was. Yeah, Two Headed Boy. And um, I'm trying to remember. I don't know. It was a lot of. And there was two different bands that covered. Uh, uh, oh, I can never remember. I want to say the replacements. Is that the one I'm thinking of? And uh, and then they had the replacements cover somebody else. So thought it was. You know they can't have them cover their own song. I guess keeps us all amused. I, I love I love cover albums and shit like that. I, I hate cover bands, but I do love. I'm with you. Yeah. Well. Uh, the lowest level. So you're, you're I mean, because you guys, uh, MC5 did a lot of covers. We I did. Mean, yeah. I mean, kick out the jams. I mean, that album is, you know, it starts off with with uh, with cover, and then uh, back in the USA with the, uh, we were listening to that on the yeah. way over with uh, the Tutti Frutti. Yeah, as what, a, it's what's a, the, a brilliant what's, opening choice. What's for the a what's the deal with that second album? What's the what's the story behind that? 
the story behind Back in the USA is that. Is that the name of the album? It is. I'm sorry. We were criticized, um, in fact, in Rolling Stone by Lester (laughs) Bangs. Ah, mercilessly. He, as, he, as only damn you, Bangs. He, he, as the only way he will be. Lester he, Bangs is a real diabolical he, name. He, yeah, he yeah. ripped us a new one, and uh, exchanged some words. And, it, and <laughs> I was young, and uh, and I was immature, and I reacted oh. to his criticism by saying that I was going to make the next record a perfect record. And no one would be able to criticize us for not playing in tune or the tempos being. It was too raw and thrashy and kind of that yeah, kind of it shit. It was going to be tight and yeah. we're going to sing on pitch and we're going to sing in harmony and we all the solos and everything. Arrangements be, are just. Mm. Yep. Ne- perfect. Just, just locked down, rock solid. And, uh, and it really flew in the face of the trends of the moment because in those years, like that was the time of the. 15-minute drum solo and the 10-minute blues guitar solo and all this kind of fake psychedelia. And, <laughs> and uh, the MC5's record was all, you know, two-and-a-half-minute right. blasts of focused energy. Especially it's a big shift, too, from what everyone was expecting as a yep. follow-up from Kick Out the Jams. I yep. mean, it's yep. just it's a high-energy, just go, 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 just in your face, balls to the wall kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, you've got your like, is that It's a Little Richard cover, which... I mean, it's 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 an interesting thing to say that today to be able to think of an album that starts off like that. But how, how was that, especially as the opening track kind of received? In well, because we we did those, those that kind of material. All the I mean, time. we loved Richard and we loved you know how driving is. That's right, out of the scene that you guys came out of. Too, kind of thing. And yeah. Chuck yes, Berry, we, yep. we grew up on Chuck Berry. You know, as a guitar player, it was all about Chuck Berry. And that yeah. closes out the album on that yeah. one. It's a Chuck Berry cover. And. Uh, uh, so I, I think we we swung too far to the right in the in our in our uh, uh, effort to 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 make a, 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 a record that couldn't be criticized for the things that the first album was criticized. Can we for. play something off back in the uh, back in the USA. Do you have a favorite a favorite track off that one? Yeah, my favorite uh, would probably be. Um, uh, the human being lawnmower. That's a that's I like that one because it's, because it, so, the music was actually more stretched out and and more advanced than uh, than kick out the jams. I mean, if you listen to this one, this is like um, uh, very intricate arrangement. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very well very layered, unortho, unorthodox, and changes all the time. Damn you, Mitch. Oh, yeah. It's my fault. Mitch, your internets don't be cooperating in no kind of way. You know how you be bringing in legendary musicians, and right when you get to the crescendo, the shit be falling out. Comcast! Oh, Bandwidth. Fuck need all bandwidth. y'all time for the motherfuckers. Net neutrality, we need it! We need it, yes. I think, here's here's why Wayne is giggling his ass off, is because if this, ha- if this problem happens over at his office, he calls me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so when it happens here, he's like, man, I have to laugh, because this shit is too damn funny. Yeah. Uh, well, good. I'm waiting for it to buffer. You just hold your damn. You horses. do. You do that. Uh, there, you gotta, there you go. There you yeah. go. You got all kinds. You got to yell at the right people in the ethereal. Yeah. Or reload up. the page. Whatever. Hey, man. Twinkle, twinkle. And yet, a psychedelic album cover. 
That's, that's not that, the cover. That's, that's not, not the cover. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. It says studio outtake. Don't trust things on YouTube. Don't trust the music. Well, if Wayne didn't go, this isn't right. Then <laughs> There's your harmony. Nice. Nice. So you're saying this second album was that Lester Bangs went off on or the first album was? No, the first one. And and actually Lester um, recanted, uh, took it all back. I heard about that. Moved to Detroit and and became uh, one of our greatest supporters and a good friend. Uh, wow. For the rest of his life. Shout out yeah. to Lester Banks. Yeah, he was. Uh, he, uh, in fact, he he embraced the whole MC5 uh, zeitgeist. You know, he he went for it. But it, you can hear a lot. So he he wrote like a follow up review. By the way, I was wrong. You can go out and buy that album, yeah. and you won't get crucified for it yeah. anymore. Uh, Maybe a year or two, ten years later, yeah. how long it's been. I mean, you can hear a lot of uh, of like a lot of different bands nowadays. I'm, I can hear a lot of groups like at the drive in. And right, that kind of right, sound right. that exists now, you can mm-hmm. hear a lot of that very sort of big and, and wielding sound mm-hmm. where it's just one melody here and then it shifts to another melody later. But it's, it's, it's interesting to think that that was the, that was the response to being, okay, you think all we're going to do is just get on stage and just kind of shout and just kind of do mm-hmm. this thing. We can go ahead and put together something that's on a very, very different level musically with a, an appreciation that, you know, that grows over time. Uh, we got, we got, we got hammered pretty good. Uh, but so I think I think and it, to me it's interesting historically that our constituents in the industrial Midwest were confused by back in the USA. It was so clean and tight, and they were just like scratching their heads, going, "Well, I'm, I'm not sure." The British didn't like kick out the jams because it it was just too far away from British pop sensibility. But they all loved back in the USA later on when i uh, went to england in the in the uh, late end of the 70s and the early 80s and met the clash and billy bragg and nick lowe and and all these guys elvis right, and they all right. said back in the usa was the shit that was the album that they they dug that album because everything was tight focus you know in that british pop sensibility it does have a it does have a different focus. Uh, it, does, it almost it almost in a way reminds me of uh, early Black Sabbath, uh, certainly in the in the middle part there, and just like the the rolling kind of just reminded me of like I'm literally just talking maybe like a first or second album, um, like uh, uh, Paranoid or something like that. So I could see where. Uh, you know, the arising like that and sort of it seemed like punk kind of like ebb, it was an ebb and flow. And then over here, it just kind of stayed and or got bigger. Maybe. I mean, I, having never been there, I have no idea if that's accurate, but it just seems that way because it seems like out of the bands that come out of there, they, they stopped producing punk bands, basically. Like after the clash, I can't think of a lot of like British. Yeah. British punk bands, like huge ones. I'm going to feel real stupid if. Somebody well, there was there was the pub rock 
movement, you know, like all the right, right. Uh, Ian Dury and uh, Dr. Feelgood and all the bands that kind of came out of that, which they weren't exactly, you know, nihilist. It was a very big Sex shift. Pistol. Yeah, it was a very big shift in terms of yeah. what what kind of mentality was really. I mean, because then you then you I feel like in terms of what was I mean, the Sex Pistols they still maintain a kind of popular resonance in that culture, but then you see a shift to more after that. That's when you've got the Brit pop of like Blur and Oasis kind of comes. Well, it, uh, it's not too much later on. I feel like that's no, but, when the, but the 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 step there was that. Punk rock was too hard to market. It, mm-hmm. was, it was too raw, and so they the the geniuses in the marketing departments came up with um, uh, new wave. That, right, oh, right, so that's right, Joy Division right. and, and New Order. And the new romance. That would be the and, that would be the bridge and, uh, then. Adam and the Ants and uh, all those. I was living in New York in the eighties, and they would all come and play the Ritz, like whatever. Echo and the Bunny Man and all, Echo, these, all yeah, these kind of okay. bands would come right. in. Like the, I knew that that's tail end like, of uh, Ziggy Stardust kind of stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Echo. Yeah, I mean, Echo and the Bunny Man had their own. I mean, that's that's a very, that's the Cure kind of starts yeah. to come in there, yeah, and that sure, sound sure, that sure. very kind of gothic. And, Less to do with punk, right? And more to do with aesthetics, a, a British pop sensibility, right. you know, eclectic and well, going off in little tangents, but yeah, but uh, where. It, where it left the MC5 was that uh, we left. Uh, we were fired from Elektra. Atlantic right. Records picked the band up right away, and Jerry Wexler, he saw the value of the band, and and he was getting out of the record business. He was getting ready to retire, so he signed us as kind of like his parting shot, you know, like. Uh. And I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you a little something to remember me by. <laughs> and by the way, kick out these jams. Yeah, have fun with these guys, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, so, so this first album, uh, John Landau produced, and John had never produced a band before. He was a highly respected uh, music journalist. He was doing, didn't he do some stuff with Rolling Stone? I think, and he was writing for he, them. And he was like the dean of American music writers right. at the time, and and I really liked him because um, he knew his he knew his stuff. He knew music, and and he could communicate with us in a way where he could. Uh, uh, unpack ideas that we kind of glossed over in a, a fog, a marijuana fog. <laughs> yeah, sure, <laughs> like, sure. like we would just sum it up and say, "Yeah, that's down, man. That's bad. That's that's shit. That yeah, yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. That's killer." <laughs> so the sort of big picture, small picture. Yeah, kind and of. he would he would unpack it and say, "Well, you like that because this kind of guitar playing fits in with this drumming, which comes from this." And then that influences this and kind of put the whole picture together. Did the clean sound of that, I mean, did that, because you can hear that MC5 energy and focus that on Kick Out the Jams is coming through and just the live show and the fact that you guys have been spending years as a, as a, as an act, as a live act, you mm-hmm. know, just being like, this is our turf. We're mm-hmm. going to walk, cock of the walk kind of thing, you sure. know, and then it all kind of culminates with this amazing live album. And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to capture it, but we're going to apply that same focus in a very regimented but clean fashion. And you can kind of hear that in the, the track list and the way it goes down. Mm-hmm. But the sound, the actual sort of, you know, the harmonies and stuff, was that you guys pushing more of that? Like, this is where we want to go? Or did that kind of come more from John? Or was it just as the sessions went over time, you said, this is where we think we need to be? It, it was a learning process. It's the sound of a band learning how to make a record. Because our only experience in the studio 
had been maybe three or four singles. Mm. And in those days, the way studios in Detroit worked is you'd book your session, you get three hours, you go in, set up your gear, play the two tracks, do the overdubs, sing it, mix it, and get out. Start selling. Yeah, because (laughs) because Edwin Starr is waiting in the lobby with his band, and they're coming in to record next. It was the assembly line. Right. And so, you know, it was all just like, ah, okay, we're done. And so we really didn't know what we were doing or how to get a guitar sound or anything. And so we were learning on this record. Um, This was the first time we really had a chance to record something and sit back and listen to it and analyze it and say what's working and what isn't working. And we started to see there were problems with the rhythm section, that the, the drummer couldn't hold the tempo steady couldn't keep up kind of well he, he would it, it's the old russian dragon you know <laughs> the the faster the louder the song was the faster he'd play the yeah. slower the song if the song got quiet he'd slow down and the bass player was too undisciplined uh, he couldn't even keep the chord changes together and so you know we had to make like huge decisions about what are we going to do and so we we discovered this thing called the click track which we never knew existed. <laughs> so the drummer's hearing this tick, 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 doo doo tick, doo doo tick, doo doo tick. That's where time is. Play right on that. And he he rose to the occasion. The bass player um, couldn't handle it, and I ended up playing bass on the record. Um, so are there any tracks that feature him on bass, or all the all the bass on on back of the yeah, USA? I'll that's all. A... I play all of it. So so it was really. You know, in Lando, it was his uh, his first venture into recording, and and uh, we just, I mean, that's the sound of a band figuring out how to work in the studio. Because after he works with you guys, it's not too long after that he kind of goes on and starts to start work with Springsteen, right? And it, are there? Can you hear a lot of in Springsteen stuff? Because it's it you hit you talk about sort of that the the you know the demographic that heard back in the USA, and they're mm-hmm. kind of like, well, I'm not really sure about this, but then that's kind of the same people that Springsteen. A little bit had a great resonance with, and you had this. You share you share a producer yeah. who kind of began to find his sound and his sort of touch with you, and then took that on with Springsteen. Yeah, I, I think John um, taught us how to think, you know, and and to kind of get out of our um, the bubble that the band existed in, uh, uh, kind of feedback loop where we just reinforced each other all the time, and we're never able to look. Um, more honestly and never able to look critically at anything we did. Uh, and, you know, John brought a perspective of the outside world to it. And uh, uh, I think that that same process of, of deconstruction uh, he brought to his later client, uh, Bruce, <laughs> uh, who who also, I mean, they went way into it and, and figuring out who is Bruce and what is the identity that he's trying to sell and and what is Bruce's story. Right. And, it, you know, and then they, they constructed the whole thing that Bruce is today, which is, you know, that he draws from uh, the American story, the, the uh, working class roots and the challenges. Take care of your that, own. Yeah, challenges that, that uh, poor people and working people have and people that live in the margins. I mean, he was really able to, to develop those themes over a, a career with Bruce, the MC5 was way too volatile, and uh, and you know I wanted him to stay with us. I wanted him to manage the band, and he didn't want to be a manager. He just wanted to be a producer. But I think the truth was he knew that we were 
unmanageable and we were we were just a load of trouble <laughs> i mean we were insane and you know i mean we would go out we would fight with people in the street and he got involved like one night we came from a gig and these these uh greasers started messing with us about our hair and greasers haven't heard that term. <laughs> we just in a hot minute. We, uh. we just weren't the kind of guys that you know we were greasers mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and so we didn't, you know, we didn't, we're not going to like turn the other cheek. And then they followed us out and there, somebody threw the cuffs. Yeah. And it just got ugly. And, and Landau's in the middle of it. And he's like, oh, can I go back to the hotel? <laughs> so I think he just said, you know, probably it'd be better if, you know, he didn't manage the MC5. And uh, he, he had this young kid that he was starting to work with from uh, New Jersey. And, uh, and uh but spring but, what he'll never go anywhere <laughs> yeah, but the, but the, so the the end result was that by the time we got to make our third album that's uh high, high time, times right we knew what we were doing we knew how to work in a recording studio we knew this revolutionary new concept called punching in we never knew that before so we said well if the bass player if Michael's playing and he, you know he starts to lose it again, but everybody else knows where we are in the song, keep recording, and he can come back and fix his part later. I mean, that's got to be a, a fucking just like straight up the first person to find fire kind of moment. You yeah, know, where you're just like, what the fuck? You mean was, to tell me we could record a song and the motherfucker could come in later and yeah. the song is just a dud? What the fuck? Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and and we'd punch him in and he, you know he'd just be all over the map and we'd say, damn, you hear what he just did? That's because you you know you'd pick the your punch point and it sounded like he'd be playing this wicked James Jamerson complicated figure, which was actually two different figures. Uh, you know, punched in together and it just sounded brilliant. And, you know, his bass playing was the sound of the band. It really, my bass playing was way more uh, uh, conservative. He was a right. very adventurous player. And uh, so by the time we made High Time, we knew what we were doing. We, we knew we had good songs. And we also knew that if we didn't make a good record, it was going to be all over. The thing about High Time that I noticed is is that the thing, from the opening just first couple minutes when you listen to it, it really does sound exactly like you're describing of a record where you guys finally had reached a place where you go, okay, we know we know who we are. We more, know more importantly, we know our sound. We know more importantly than that how to take that sound and then go in the studio mm -hmm. and then really put that together with good songwriting and good song arrangements. Mm -hmm. And it it does have the sort of combination of a lot of the rawness of Kick Out the Jams, mm -hmm. but that a sense of what you're saying from back in the USA of I'm making a fucking perfect record. Like mm -hmm. it's real tight. It's real mm -hmm. clean. Mm -hmm. And it, it somehow comes together and everything just works in mm -hmm. that, in that album. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, it comes across very well in that regard. I wanted to talk about, um, uh, kind of two different things, but, um, your, your arrest and conviction, uh, well, actually three things really, cause there's the arrest conviction. Uh, then I want to talk about uh, somewhat your politics and uh, your whole jail guitar doors um, uh, charity. What I don't know how it you is, it is foundation. A okay, uh, so the arrest. What the? How did how did that all go down? Was that <laughs> were you just like too high to notice, or would they? Did they, I mean did they take you completely by surprise, or did you? Was there a moment where you go, oh, I'm fucked, uh, I can't even run, or how did how did that all work out? Well, 
Yes, it was you, you bought from or you were selling to an FBI you, undercover no, it, FBI it, agent. It's 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 um. If it's okay to talk about, no, it, I'm listen. I'm happy to talk about it. You know, I achieved a great deal uh, as a young man. Uh, in fact, we were talking about that your band from Phoenix. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, that were huge, yeah. achieved everything they wanted to achieve in their own hometown. Yeah. I had done that too. By the time I was 18, I had surpassed my wildest dreams. I was a professional musician. I had a huge, uh, hugely popular band. I could pay my rent. I was getting laid as much as I wanted to. I was getting Hit high. Records. Yeah. Right, yeah, right, I had yeah. friends. I was part of a community. I was going some The revolution. Yeah. Yeah. I was part of, I mean, a lot of shit was going on. I had it going on. Um, but that, you know, the center never holds. And however things are today, they won't be like this five years from now. Everything will change. Things fall apart and reform into other things. And the MC5 was such a volatile uh, undertaking and so ill-suited for <laughs> success in show business um, that we um, self-destructed like most bands do. You yeah, know, yeah. if you think of how many bands there's been, there's been hundreds of thousands of them. They come, you see them come and you see them go and mostly you see them go. Very few bands stick around, you yeah, know, yeah. the U2s. And the, even they have gone through a lot of shit, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, the Who, the Rolling Stones, you know, very few. You could count them on one hand, probably. Um, it's very difficult to sustain a career uh, with four or five individuals. Um, and one day the MC5 was gone. I just kind of woke up one day and it had all gone away. You know, my they were my friends. They were my social construct. They were my way of making money. It was my identity in the world. And um, I I had talent, you know, but talent's not enough. <laughs> it's not. You you know, to be able to do something well, that, that will, that's not enough to sustain you when the wind's blowing. <clears throat> yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and I discovered... You know, I experimented with drugs like everybody, like all young people do, and and went too far with a lot of it. And all during the MC5, we championed marijuana smoking, and we took acid. And and uh, I wasn't a, much of a drinker in those days, but as things got tougher in my work and in, in my life in general, with the band and management and the police and everything, I found that... Um, the more I got high, the easier things seemed to be. <laughs> sure. They weren't, but at least my perception of it was things didn't bother me so much. You know, I, I wasn't so concerned about my career. And it ultimately boiled down to I only had one problem, and that was getting high every day. I had acquired um, uh, addiction uh, as a state of mind, as a way of life. I've acquired alcoholism. And um, of course, when you spend most of your time getting high, um, then you don't have any energy left to actually deal with the problems that you're escaping. Yeah. <laughs> so they tend to get worse. If you can right, even right. Make, re make yourself realize that you have problems right. that you're escaping. Yeah, you can't even, you can't see the forest for the trees. And then, and that's at least, that's my story. And and I got into a, um, a very uh, resentful and bitter frame of mind 
and uh, found other people that were re resentful and bitter. And um, I found that uh, there was um, a kind of status in the underworld, that in the criminal world, like if you did wrong, it was right. And if you hurt people, you were admired. And if you stole, you were you had status, you yeah, know. Yeah. And if you could hustle, then you were somebody. And um, I was attracted to that. And I found that I, you know, I could do things. I could do activities, uh, stealing, robbing, dealing drugs, guns, stolen cars, televisions. Just every manner of hustle that uh, a young man can get into in an sure, in sure. American city enterprise, man. I, I was a, I was I was an illegitimate capitalist. There you go. <laughs> and uh, and um, um, finally, uh, you know, you you try to find the things that have the biggest return. And in those days, uh, dealing drugs was uh, seemed seemed to be lucrative. Um, and I mean, seem to be lucrative. <laughs> it's never lucrative. It wasn't lucrative then, and it's never lucrative. Uh, it might be for a minute, but it'll always blow up in your face. And it blew up in my face, and uh, I ended up with uh, a federal indictment for uh, trafficking and uh, controlled substances and a four-year federal prison term. So, you know, it, it was just the culmination of a... Uh, of slipping down, 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 and and you know, like the old uh, Nietzsche and uh, whatever doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. Well, that wasn't my experience. Things that, that you know, these terrible things that happened, um, they didn't make me stronger. They just diminished me more. I had less self-respect and less integrity, and I hung out with lower and lower companions. Sure. Until sure. the point where you know, because you can always stand on top of a smaller hill. Sure. Yeah, and and I'm living in a world that's a backwards world. It's a right, it's right. a you know it's like good, a bizarre world. Pretty yeah, much, good yeah. is bad and bad is good. And you come in and you say, "I just robbed this guy," and everybody says, "Right on," you know, and they admire you for it. Yeah. And and uh, and in the end, uh, I wasn't very good at it. Uh, as a drug dealer, I'm a terrific guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> you can put that on the board. Uh, that's fantastic. Because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a killer, and right. I'm, I'm not a gangster, and I'm not a tough guy, you know. And, and, uh, and to really to, – to be successful in those worlds, you have to be, uh, you have to be brutal. Right, You Heartless, have to be cold-blooded, yeah. and, and uh, you have to be a killer, and I'm none of those things. And uh, so I ended up uh, in federal prison. So you you come out of there. You got, uh, is that you didn't immediately go sober at that point? Did you? No, no, no. I, I I didn't. I came out of prison. All I had was willpower. Right. And how far is that going to get you? You know. It greatly <laughs> depends on what it's powering. I think <laughs> depends on what what kind of car you put that engine in. Well, it didn't. It didn't do me much good. I mean, I came out, and my girlfriend. I had this go go girl, typical. Uh, musicians go go girl girlfriend you know working in the topless bar sure, been there. we're all we're all junkies and uh she's i'm driving her to cop every day and she's wayne look i, I know you don't want to use right now and i admire you for that but if you change your mind the shit's really good <laughs> shit's really good wayne oh man it's fire shit's fire right now man 
So how long? I didn't have it. And then, and then I make the brilliant career move to decide to join a band with Johnny Thunders. So uh, I didn't have a chance. <laughs> you're basically just setting yourself up for uh, yeah, yeah. You've got, you've got a devil not only in on your shoulder but in your car. <laughs> yes, right next to you. But that, that's the, that's the paradox of of addiction. Is I think that I can handle it. I think I can control. I can. The music will win out. The addiction is right. always sure. a, a beatable yeah. as long as you apply yeah. whatever focus. Yeah. Well, it does. It I, does. I mean, it's it's strange because you think of certain bands that, like, once they kick the drugs, you just go like, you know, you can you can go back. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> look, Motley Crue, nobody will hate you. I mean, let's be fair. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Certain bands, uh, uh, so, Motley yeah. Crue, uh, to some degree, uh, you, Aerosmith. Uh, would you would you would you put Metallica in there? Definitely would put Metallica in there. That was going to be my next one. Although their 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 height of like more alcohol than anything else was was on the Black album, which sucked. Uh, but not it it was the least sucky. Of their post and Justice for All sucky albums. I don't see, know if you're I, see, a Metallica I, I, fan. I've, I've come to believe that artists have done great work um, in spite of their addiction, not as a result of their addiction. I, Same. you know, I, I know there's a school of thought that says you get high and it lowers your inhibitions and your creativity flows. But unleash your tortured artists. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not buying it. You know, <clears throat> the drugs don't write any songs. They don't. Mm. They don't make any records. You have to do that through your own creativity, your own ideas, your own self discipline. Yeah. And and uh, my experience has been that that drugs are uh, an impediment. You know, being creative is hard work. It takes all the brain power you have. Yeah. And. Uh, um, I, I, now you, you still uh, have you played, for instance, any like normal fests or uh, anything like that? Do you, do you still lobby for uh, better drug laws or, or laxer drug laws? Um, well, yeah, of course. I, I you know, I, um, I, think, I mean, I guess do you, do you come face to face with that sort of dichotomy of like, well, yeah, yeah but you're X amount of years sober, right. you don't, you know, blah blah. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. uh, overall, they're a negative thing, but hey. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if they tell you to go play normally. I have no idea. <laughs> no, no. Listen, I, I support uh, um, uh, sensible marijuana laws, and I think marijuana is a relatively benign substance. No. You know, you can't overdose on it. No one yeah. ever died of a marijuana overdose. Sure. You know, no one, no one ever stuck up the Seven Eleven because they had to buy marijuana. They, they might have said, "You got to give up the Hagen Dazs, man. <laughs> I need that Hagen Dazs." Yeah. You got to give up the Twinkies, man. And it turned out they were talking to themselves in the mirror. You know, it's, it's all fair. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, well, listen, to, you know, to um, to have to come through the prison experience and say, "Well, what happened to me? How did you know? How did that change me?" Uh, and I, I don't think it changed me for the better. It certainly made me less naive. Um, I don't think prison changes anybody for the better. Um, and I think that we have reached a point in America where uh, we're in the midst of the greatest failure of social policy in America's domestic history. Um, the war on drugs has created uh, a, a disaster, uh, a social disaster in, uh, you know, there's over 10 million people uh, under direct state control who are um, 
excised from the mainstream. People with felonies, you know, they can't get uh, a license to cut your hair. Right. Yeah, can't right, find a right. job at all. I yeah. Mean, it's, you, it's... you can't get it. I mean, jobs are hard enough to find without felonies. With felonies, you're screwed. Yeah. Right. So you're you're carved outside of the, the system to begin with. Uh, we have uh, over three million people on probation and parole. We have two and a half million people under lock and key. We lock up people uh, at a rate five times any country in the world in America. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, the the degree and the um, degree of se- severity of the sentences that people people get in America and most people don't know about it and it's something that I I'm glad you brought the subject up because it's a it's a conversation that I think uh, needs to to get initiated you know it's out of sight out of mind and and the trouble yeah, yeah. is this does if this affects mostly people of color and people of limited economic means because if there were two and a half million young white boys in prison this shit would be over well that's the thing is that the marijuana usage rate for blacks versus white it's only a 25 percent difference in the usage rate but the actual arrest rate for blacks versus white it's it's 300 percent higher for blacks which is i mean to think of that number it's it's astronomical and then you go and you look at the numbers in the neighborhoods where you you've got the highest per uh, you know, per capita, I guess, of, of arrest, and you look at the numbers for blacks, and it's something thousand. It's like three thousand per like mm-hmm. hundred thousand or something, and for whites, it's like two hundred. I mean, it's just, it's just, and then the usage rate. I mean, it's the arrest rate is like fifty percent higher, but the usage rate is negligible. It's the same. It's it's the same. I mean, it's completely the same. And and not only that, but I guess the other thing that you know to, to sort of pivot off of the the social policy with prisons. Not only do you then have this large. Uh, aspect of the population that's in prison, but then you get them there and the conditions are absolutely atrocious and they're heinous. And not only that, but there's corruption and prisoners are being pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. And then you've yep. got, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a cultural punchline. Go in prison, bad, right? come out worse. Right. It's a, it's, it's also a cultural punchline to be like, Oh, you go into prison, you're going to get raped. But like, you're also just being like, you're going to get raped. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible policy to and, have and institutionalized. It. It's ha ha ha. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's a, it's a horrific, horrific thing where you're already being, you know, marginalized from society based on, questionable means in some cases based mm-hmm. on what your sentence is but then you're you're not going in any kind of corrective rehabilitative state it's basically just you're done well we're i think we're, we're, we're coming off of a i mean it's basically the idea it's it, it we're still in a mindset as a as a society of like only the very worst right. will ever go to prison and so the general feeling is like whatever fucking happens in there well Maybe you should have fucking thought about that. And it's like, well, maybe. But at the same time, when you look at what got somebody there, the the punishment certainly doesn't fit the crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, but oh, they- I smoked a joint in public. Now I'm doing three years or whatever, st- stuff like that. Or I didn't have, in most cases, I didn't have a very good lawyer. So I you know I went you with didn't whatever. didn't have a lawyer. Yeah, I went with whatever the state provided me. And they were like, listen, uh, plea bargain, do two, three years. And it's like, well, there goes ever getting a job. Uh, the idea that prison is the, the only for the worst of the worst is a reasonable idea. It's not the reality. Right, right. If you go into any prison in America today, what you'll find is a prison full of regular people, just round the way guys. I 
I've been in a lot of prisons. I'm kind of in touch with what goes on in prisons in America. Yeah. I'd put it at 10%, maybe 15% are hardcore, violent, uh, incorrigible knuckleheads that ain't going to change, that are so damaged that they can only relate to to other people violently. Right. And they are dangerous people and they need to be in prison. I believe that they should be in prison uh, for their own well-being. They need to be locked up. They're just too damaged. But 85% of the people in prison, they're not tattoo, eyeball tattooed head choppers. Right, right. MSNBC yeah, lockup yeah. basically they're, just showing they're, you. They're guys like me and you. I mean, I, you know, half literally them, like you. Literally. <laughs> half of them are nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Who have no business being in prison in the first place. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not, I'm not a prison abolitionist. I know that they're my, my friends on the far left, you know, critical resistance and those people, they're, they want to do away with prisons. Me too. Is there a better way that society could handle people that, 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 uh, are violent and that steal? There probably is. I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. We as a culture aren't ready for those kind of, like yeah. the kind of prisons they have in, in, you know, like a Scandinavian in country Europe, where yeah. you can, uh, yeah. you can, have kids there and yep. visit them and it's because that we don't they don't have the same cultural right. dynamics that right. lead to people being in prison it's more yeah. it's more enlightened you know if you take be, rehabilitative their, take take yeah, them yeah. away from their community they become more isolated they right. become more bitter they become more resentful right you 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 instead show them okay i am in jail but i am still capable of being a parent figure in your life and me and this other person are still capable of relating to each other. This thing that happens, it's unfortunate, but you can still build a life that is normal and you can normalize, you know, within its context. And, and offenders can be held accountable okay. for, you know, in the community. There, there's lots of ways that, um, you can be, uh, you know, uh, that restorative justice Do can be affected. Without even locking people up, it's cheaper. It's more effective, but but we we've worked ourselves into a perfect storm in America. You know, the political expediency of getting tough on crime worked really well in the '80s. A lot of politicians found that yeah, they yeah. just came out tough. I'm tough on crime, and and it was brilliantly um, orchestrated. Uh, the the political dynamic behind it was really well done. And they went on a prison building boom. And of course, if you're building the prisons, you've got to make sure you have laws uh, that uh, are going to keep the prisons full. So like here in L.A., uh, uh, teenage guy in the in the hood, uh, cops pull him over, you know, check him out, got his name, take his picture. Then they put him on a list. Then maybe two years later, he does something stupid like teenagers do steals a car, gets caught with reefer or something. They Now, oh, we had you on the list from before. It's called the gang enhancement. So whatever you did on that offense, possession of marijuana, stolen car, we're going to give you an extra 10 years because we had you on the list as a gang enhancement. So this guarantees that the prisons stay full. That's why California's prisons were 200% over capacity. Right. I mean, there's, a bit, there's been a big thing in California over the years of having to let, or talking about having to let some of the prisoners be released because it's just... The Supreme just, Court ordered it. Right. I mean, yeah, you yeah. can't... You, I mean, there's just numbers-wise, and so on a strictly empirical basis, you've set up an unsustainable <clears> system, <throat> and at some point, I mean, it, it has to break one way or the other. Yep. You've either got to change the... the, the 
Like not necessarily. I mean, it would be, I guess, in a sense, funding mechanism. That's if you want to be very corporate and blunt about what it is with those, you know, the prison no, systems. Is, and, yeah. I mean, it is the funding system yeah. of the laws and the, and, and do, the legislature. Do you, do you, where do you come down on, for instance, Tommy Chong's theory that, for instance, I mean, you, he was locked up for paraphernalia, and, which is just ridiculous um, from the outset. But he has this kind of overarching theory that since so many corporate or so many prisons are corporatized. And when you're in prison, there's, you know, a work program and everything else like that. It's almost like, well, hey, if we just lock up a bunch of people for, you know, drugs, we can put them to work for free as a sort of, I don't want to say conspiratorial, but, but as, a, an, as any sort of motivation, like maybe let's, let's lock up more than we need to because then we have a free workforce. That, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds good in a conspiracy. Uh, well, that's why I asked. World. I was telling it, Teddy before the show. I was like, yeah. you don't buy into conspiracies, so I it, thought it, this it, would be a good it, one. It doesn't play out in in reality um, quite that well. Um, Are you concerned about the corporatization of prisons at all? I, well, I am to some degree, um, but uh, because I think I think it's going to blow up in its own face. The uh, you can't run prisons cheaper than the state runs them. And it's turning out that the private prisons are run, uh, are staffed with people who have less training uh, and are making less money and creates a worse environment. Uh, So there's more incidents, more violence. Um, There was just a riot in uh, Mississippi at a um, private prison that held all immigration detainees and a guard was killed. About 40 prisoners were injured. Um, they they can't um, the private companies can't. Um, I mean, they're not interested in anything. Yeah. They're not interested in running a prison. It's the same thing that we have with Blackwater in Iraq, and the yeah. fact that we've got all these we've privatized it's the military. Exactly the same thing. And, yeah. and it's it's the fact you cannot privatize the military and then expect them to have the same standard of operation exactly that you right. would yeah. with a state run organization because they yep. don't give a fuck they can go around just shooting people in broad daylight yep. because yep. what are they going to do they they're they're corporate citizens they yep. have no real sovereign responsibility right. if you're a private prison you don't have any responsibility to the community to right. rehabilitate people right. they're just a bottom line yep. right and 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 of course it it's that uh, thing Bill Maher said not everything needs to turn a fucking profit right. and unfortunately that's the situation you run into Prisons, Blackwater, yeah, pr- things prison, like that. Is, it's, like, like, it's like the post office or the police department. It's a municipal, it's a government entity it's, yeah, that's yeah. designed to serve the government, serve the people's needs. Prisons serve a need and and should be a government-run operation. Well, it's it's especially weird with things like like prisons and you know the you know emergency response efforts like fire departments mm-hmm. and things like that, and mm-hmm. even disaster relief. Where there's been this march of privatization for so many of the past few decades, especially, you know, within America. But it's the thing of fire departments started off as a privatized entity. Yeah, you you put a logo of a fire department on your house that you paid for. Yeah, yeah. And right. if they didn't if a fire broke out and you you know your your neighbor's house was on fire but they didn't have that fire department's logo tough shit yeah, you yeah. should have paid you up you weren't a subscriber you, yeah. i mean that's that's <laughs> well, that how it recently worked. happened yeah. in some upscale in community yeah, yeah. 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 wasn't it, was it was like tennessee i think it was here it may have been i mean but it's, it's i thought it was like an upscale community and they were like listen we're volunteer fire department we're gonna we're gonna charge you a bill every month kind of thing pay a subscription yeah and a guy let his bill lapse or whatever for a few months 
months. And his house burned and, down. And they just stood there like, well, <laughs> yeah, you're fucked. And it's like, listen, man, if if you know, if I forget to pay my electric bill and they come and they're like, listen, we're shutting your electricity off, I can give a dude a check. Mm-hmm. I yeah, should, no, this yeah, guy was not able to do that with the fire department. Well, it's one, it's like, a weird no, thing. No, was no, like, we already up. tried this out a long time ago and we agreed that it's a terrible, yeah. terrible way to mm-hmm. live. Yeah. And we moved towards, you know, making those things part of the greater community. It's the same thing with did the same thing in prisons. Like, it's not a good idea to privatize the military. It's not a good idea to privatize the prison. But we've become so susceptible to privatization, it's been so glossed up in so many different corporate buzzwords and so Mm -hmm. many different Mm -hmm. kind of political Mm -hmm. terms that we have learned to swallow it. But, I mean, it's it's something that has to be rejected wholesale. It has to be. Because it's an exercise of state power. We're all in agreement in the structure of government that... State has power. The state has to administer power in all these ways to uh, to to outsource it. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't. I mean, on a very fundamental level, it's the sense of you know you can't have a you can't have a privatized military that is more ingrained in a in a foreign conflict than your own military. Yeah. Because I mean that's I mean that's the whole thing with Iraq where we get the massacres happening and then they try and they try them and there's no charges at all and all mm-hmm. of a sudden we've got a international clusterfuck on our hands and we have no real way to maintaining responsibility well it's it's the same in criminal justice where um we have we end up with this two-tiered justice system where uh, political elites and economic elites um can commit egregious felonies with no accountability rarely even charged they just pay the fine or they tie tie the government up in court sure you know when gerald ford pardoned Richard Nixon, who ran on a law and order fucking Nixon campaign. Everything goes back to Nixon. Yeah. And and, and he, when he said he can walk, it was like, huh? Yeah. What? It, and, it's... and it's gone over and over and over again. You know, I was trying. I mean, this is one of my great disappointments with Barack. And I love Barack. But, you know, he said, we're not going to go back and prosecute Bush war crimes. War crimes. We're going to look forward. We're going right. to. So I thought, well, why did I think of that when I went to court? You know, I would have said, well, look, Your Honor, yeah, yeah, you caught me with all that cocaine. And yeah, I sold it to the DEA agent. But, you know, that was in the past. And so let's look forward now. And, and you know, let's just get on with our lives and, and go to it the is, future. It is I, a... I, th- I do think in that case, I, I think really what it comes down to is that I think, that, <laughs> you know, it's that thing where uh, it's he already gets enough shit from Republicans all the time. And I think the last thing he wanted was like, yeah, you know, what I, I mean, mean you it, start a war with like their recent favorite. Well, it's a, they're like, look, we got a country to fix. Don't worry about that yeah, guy. He's yeah. gone. He's not doing harm to anybody. Uh, now. I, I, I you know. get where he's the, coming. The, from. The, the yeah, political yeah. calculation is, is obvious, but it is a very disappointing pill to swallow. Well, because it's, you know, not only is the rule of law in as it plays out, but it's also aspirational. Mm-hmm. It, it speaks to, you know, what are our beliefs? What are our goals? How do we see ourselves? You know, what? do we see ourselves as a just and fair society? Yeah, it's, it's, or is it just and fair if you're well, wait, uh, I, here's a question I've asked Teddy before, uh, and I'm not sure I ever got an answer. Uh, so I'll ask you as well. And, and Teddy, feel free to chime in. A lot of the photos I've seen of you and, and your guitars and stuff like that. There's American flag logos all over the place. You seem very patriotic, very pro USA. How does that uh, how do you reconcile that with with uh, 
for instance, a distrust of the uh, social order, with a distrust of the prison system, of uh, you know privatization, things like that. Sure, D- democracy is it, is it a hope? D- it, well, it's aspirational. Democracy uh, requires participation, and if you disagree with it, it requires you to pitch a bitch. That right. was the framers' mm-hmm. idea: yeah. was all these things are, are subject to criticism and subject to protest. And it's, if the government's going in the wrong direction, it's up to the people to straighten it out, to say something about it. For the hard fights to occur. Yeah. I mean, I think the one kind of misconception that people have about the, the framers and the founding fathers is that they're these very uh, egalitarian, uh, unsullied individuals who were just sort of speaking from like, well, you know, like we're just going to set up a new country and that is that. And I think you know, they 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 were some real rowdy people. I mean, they talked a lot of shit to each other, and they got real. And I mean, you go back and you look at the actual words spoken to them by each other, and they were like, "Listen, everything you say is total shit." Mm-hmm. I mean, they called each other out very bluntly for a country that we are, where we we get very up in arms when someone makes a very blunt political statement, and we call things a gaffe when it's someone speaking the truth. I mean, the people that founded the country would probably just weep openly because they just character assassinated each other. I mean, they sometimes assassinated each other. They, mm-hmm. I mean, Hamilton and Burr. I mean, yeah. the passions ran very high because they mm-hmm. knew the stakes were very high. So you had to go out and you had to fight for it. Yep. And right, it's, right. and it's one of those things where it's like that idea of, you know, why can you be very pro American? It's that sense of, I feel like so many people's idea of what it is to mean or to be an American is very misguided and based on a totally misconstrued uh, 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 history that has been taught to them. And it's like I've said before, where it's like, if a country that birthed Frederick Douglass as one of its greatest intellectuals cannot continue to exist in the 21st century, then like, it doesn't, it doesn't deserve to, if I can't go out and try and pick up that torch and, and, and yeah. connect the bridge, yeah. then like, I'm going down swinging son, just like the MC five did on electric <laughs> going down. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's 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 on us, you know, and and it always it has to come from the bottom up, you know. Barack is not going to the change is not going to come from the top, which is something he, you know he's he's said before, and it's it's a hard message to communicate. It's a hard thing to tell people like the world is terrible. Go do something about it because yeah. they are at the same all the things that we've talked about that you are immersed in, and you're trying to pull yourself up at the same time that you're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And it's it's a very difficult thing because, you know, critical theory requires you to come up with a better idea. It's right. not enough to sit around and say this is this sucks, that yeah. sucks. You know, you've got to come up with a better idea. And and I think I think that um, there's great disappointment in the world uh, because of um, the failure of our our great institutions, religion and politics. They they're not meeting people's needs anymore. Yeah, and it opens the door for this kind of cynicism and uh, nihilism, you know. And I think that we need a way to militantly oppose meaninglessness. Right. And I think that's done with a uh, with a um, unlimited uh, ethical commitment. You know, to say uh, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be involved in something. I'm going to make something happen. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's going to lead me, but I'm going to do, I'm going to put energy, you know, into that. Sure. Uh, otherwise, yeah. otherwise then you fall, you can fall into this kind of uh, 
American Buddhism, you know, where I live up in the hill and I study Kabbalah and I meditate and yeah, I take yeah. care of my people. My family's good. I'm getting mine, everything. Right. And that's disengaging from the world. And I think we need to engage in the world. We need to be active in the world. Yeah, I had a very long, angry rant about Buddhism for a while that was, it was about that, about that, like the uh, let the monkey be a monkey, uh, that old uh, Buddhist tale every Every fucking Buddhist teaching I ever read, it's always about some animal interacting with a human or two animals. But a Buddhist monk goes into a forest to meditate it's a, or a jungle, very peaceful and quiet and whatever. And he's like, this is the fucking place to meditate. And uh, walks into a family of monkeys and they're just fucking with him. And every time he goes in there, the monkeys are fucking with him. He's like, this is my, like, this is the spot. Like, this is where I want to meditate. And then he, he, he had come to some realization that no you gotta just you can't be angry at the monkeys that's just what they do so you gotta mm -hmm. let a monkey be, be a monkey and when i read that i was like that's the fucking problem <laughs> is that you're sitting on your like high thread count yoga mat and your fucking <laughs> little buddhist water and your fucking you know in your zen garden and shit and you're and you're like you know hey uh, you gotta let the monkey be a monkey and it's like <laughs> no no sometimes sometimes you gotta knock the monkey out of the tree and be like <laughs> Fuck you. I need this jungle space yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, but, so how does that, how, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say, I think that kind of ties into what you're saying where it's just, uh, to, you know, to sort of bring it all together. I think it's the idea that so many people, kind of like what you're saying, Wayne, where they're very detached and they're just like, well, I'm just going to take care of this right here because they think the institutions that they view is very flawed and corrupt and lacking relevance mm -hmm. anymore that you can't change them. And right. because they, they have always existed, they exist in perpetuity, and they're just so big. But it's it's hard to get your mind around the fact that those institutions haven't always existed. Right. That institutions were right. built right. and that they can evolve and that yep. they can adapt and that you can be the person that goes inside of that institution yep. and changes it yep. and transforms it and makes it more relevant no, for I'm the time you. that you yeah. exist in. Yeah. And it's it's a hard idea to sell to people, especially when all like they don't see any institutions being built at the same time. And you just look out and all of them are just crumbling down, especially things like the church where it's just abuse scandal after abuse scandal. And it's the tip of the iceberg. We still uh -huh. really don't know how bad right. it is, even though we know that it's terrible. Yeah. It's it's tough to think, fuck, I can go into that and change it. Do I even want to change mm -hmm. it? Do I even want to build something else? You know, it's it's a difficult thing, I guess. To And that's where the challenge comes in, where it's like you at least have to get people shoved in enough where they are considering the fact that, okay, do I want to change this thing or tear this thing down and build something up in its place? Yeah, because if people built it, people can change it. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah I mean, sure. it's all down to, what you know, organize, 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 organize. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Uh, we're, we're, we got about 10 minutes. Um, I mean, we could keep going forever. No, but 10 minutes is good. Okay. Um, Tell people, or tell us as well, uh, what is it that you do with gel guitar doors? What's the, how do, you know, I mean, what's the MO, if you will? Gel guitar doors is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit, um, musician founded, musician operated. Um, and it's a simple idea. We find people that work in corrections that work in prisons, mm -hmm. that are willing to use music as a tool for rehabilitation, and we provide them with guitars, sometimes other instruments, but mostly guitars. And uh, sometimes we produce um, music concerts in prisons, mm -hmm. and we also have a uh, 
a legislative uh, arm, a kind of a two-tiered approach. You know, one is kind of down on the ground, people helping people, and then the other is a political um, goal, because there has to be a political goal at the end of the day, a legislative goal, and that is, uh, of course, uh, sentencing reform, you, prison reform, and ultimately uh, justice reform. I mean, either to, to quote my 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 friend Senator Jim Webb, uh, uh, either we're the most evil people in the history of the world, or we're doing something wrong about locking people up. <laughs> <laughs> I assume it's the latter. That's uh, a fair assessment. Yeah. So, so, uh, so that, it's a, a that, lot of like you. Although, depending on the day, boy, I tell do, you. do you foresee a uh, do you foresee a time in your life where you go, okay, I've I've been in and like I've literally been in and out of the prison system, and I've I've studied enough about it to give an overview and go to Congress with this, or to run on my own ticket to make this change or anything like that. Or is it mostly about um, just spreading the knowledge? Well, I'm going to Congress tomorrow. Oh, hey, oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> tomorrow I fly to D.C. to meet with Senator Webb and uh, uh, Representative Scott and a couple other um, uh, congressmen uh, that are all kind of uh, moving in the same direction. Okay. Uh, it's... it's um, it's it's a problem. It's a huge problem that it's like the pink elephant in the living room that nobody mentions. You know, it's 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 kind of it's it's getting onto the it's getting a little airtime here and there. Right. Yeah, the progressives certainly. are are mentioning it. It shows up here and there. It was one of my great disappointments with Occupy that I thought, great, I love Occupy. They're going to start talking about mass incarceration in America, and they never did. I think that's no, one of those no. things where you could see that that movement is very disconnected from the sort of reality, like the demographical realities of the the prison. The, yeah. What I mean, that's that's Who, one of the act, effect? the yeah. activists are very disconnected from the you know the activism kind of thing. Yeah. So. It's very hard to get a political uh, speech across in 140 characters. <laughs> they the uh, they uh, um, so so uh, yeah. There's the political. The political side of it, and uh, Senator well, it's, Webb, it's it, that difficult thing to rally behind. In the same way that for a very long time, uh, officials didn't want to, for instance, discuss marijuana reform. Sure. On the one hand, it's like, yeah, I think we can relatively agree. A majority of the public now agrees, like, yeah, mm -hmm. but you know, you come out as Mister Weed Senator, uh, you know what I mean? Or, or certain things where you go, hey, maybe we should relook at this, and it's very easy for somebody to say. Oh, so you just want to like let all the criminals go? Yeah, like, what, you, you're uh, you're the guy sticking up for harder. What what about the people that are committing all the crimes in the streets? Shouldn't we lock people up? And same thing with you know again, marijuana reform is a very simple like you don't want to be the guy standing out there alone going seriously. It's okay. It's just we like what. I think that might that be guy. one of the things. I'm not sure how much this plays a part with Senator Webb. I know he, this is his last. Uh, you know, he's 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 retiring from the from the Senate. He's not running he, for re-election. He won't go for the money. Yeah, he's not running for re-election. Uh, so I I I don't know how much that plays a part in in his efforts. But I know it certainly doesn't hurt. You know, Mitch, to tackle an issue like this that has for so long just been neglected and no one really wants to touch it. If you know you're about to exit the halls of power. It, it, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, I can give this a lot more weight than I know I can because I don't have to worry about the restrictions of sure. reelection. That's my hope. That's a, that's what I want to talk to him about because I want to s just see, well, you know, what 
what are you going to do, Jim? Right. You know, where, where you're in a very, he's in a very unique position, especially yep. in VA. I mean, in Virginia, I mean, that's, you know, that's his constituency. And, and I mean, that is, that is a very urgent maybe, concern. How do we get him on a Skype? And then... <laughs> yeah, maybe, um, Brock has a plan for him. Maybe he's got, I don't, this is what I want to find out, uh, you know, yeah. where, where he's going to, cause he's not going to walk away. He's a Marine. Yeah. He don't quit. And he ain't gonna. He he's, he's always been whispered invested. in terms of you know he was whispered as a potential vice presidential candidate and always is kind of whispered as as a leader in the Democratic Party in the future because he's, he's got a lot of working class roots. Oh, he's peerless, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's a war hero and uh, he's a really forward thinking thinking fellow. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking forward to talking to him. So, so well, best of luck in that conversation. Yeah. That well, thanks. Like- yeah. We'll we'll I'll know more. You know, in a few days. Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, he's got. He, he's written a, a Justice Reform Commission Act, hmm. and it's uh, it's a, uh, the goal is to get this passed. Um, probably it's, not in this year's Congress because it's an election year. Yeah, but, but at but least I, to get it out, at least before, in the run up to the election, to get a little traction, kind of. They've they've made a couple runs at it, and they've come very close. It's a bipartisan. Uh, it's supported on both sides, even the conservative right realizes that um that the our approach to criminal justice is unsustainable yeah. when grover norquist and newt gingrich form a prison reform movement called right on crime yeah you know that there's they're going to get some traction you know that there's at least something to the issue yeah. that <laughs> that speaks to a, a great need that has to be addressed something's really out of line if you find yourself agreeing with norquist norquist on anything <laughs> <laughs> he uh so, so if they can get the commission seated, get it funded and seated, it'll sit for a year. It'll be a twelve-member panel, and they'll conduct hearings and they'll try to answer five questions: oh. Who are we locking up? Why are we locking them up? What do we do with them while we have them locked up? How long are we locking them up for? And what do we do with them when we're done having them locked up? And we don't have good answers for those things. They'll make some recommendations. I'd say that last one is is the big problem that we have now. Huge, That's, unbelievable, I mean, you know, especially in a state like California. Yep. Yeah. The I mean, recidivism is is it's out of control. Yeah. Uh, they, and you know they send people back to prison for uh, administrative violations. They're not even new crimes. Right. They're right, missing right. a meeting or dirty urines. Yeah. Those aren't crimes. You've, I mean, it's a whole game. It's rigged that you lose every step yeah. of the way. Yeah. 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 So, so that's what we do. We're, you know, we're, we're in the process now of, uh, organizing our biggest, um, donation. We are going to donate uh, about 85 guitars to the California Department of Corrections in in about uh, nine different institutions, San Quentin, Folsom, uh, Lancaster, Avenal, uh, Soledad, uh, Tehachapi, uh, Salinas Valley, and there's a couple more. I can't, uh, I'm not remembering. I was impressed you got it through seven. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. The guy who knows his prisons. Because the word's gotten out about who we are now. So guys who write us yeah. and say we've heard about the program, and and what we do is we write them back and tell them that um, a staff member has to contact our office. We can't just send a guitar. So they kind of have to be recommended, or at least is that is that how it has to be? Someone from the prison has to sort of a qualified decision maker, a right. staff member, mm-hmm. because um, we have to know that the guitars are being 
that are they're going to be allowed into the institution and that the prisoners will be actually be able to use them. Right. If we just send guitars, we don't know where they're going to end up, and we don't liability is pro- yeah. provide guitars. You can for, make a lot guards. of weapons yeah. out of a fucking fender. I got gotcha. you. I can make a lot of prison escapes with one guitar. Thing. <laughs> yeah, that call this the Stratocaster pole vault. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh. So the program has been very successful. And do you are, sign the guitars, Wayne? Is this is from I, Wayne? No. You think I, they? Are, we, we put a <laughs> sticker on there. It says Joe Guitar. Uh, right. We know that arts and corrections are the efficacy is uh, dollar for dollar. You can't beat it. Yeah. Um, we have some um, data. Uh, a couple studies were done on uh, people that participated in arts and corrections programs while they were incarcerated against people that didn't, and the recidivism rates were 75% improved. Wow. You know, uh, playing music and doing something creative um, is a way, one of the only ways to connect a human being with his humanity, you know, to finally break through that narcissism. And uh, and if you can connect with your own humanity, that allows you to connect with somebody Have else's Have a greater humanity. empathy for it. Yeah. yeah. So, so if the idea is to change for the better, you know, that, 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 that these institutions, that, uh, that the, the goal is to produce people that are better than when they came in, that, ha- that are abilitated, yeah. if not rehabilitated, um, then you have to be able to, to um, uh, find a change of heart. It's not enough just to, education's important, but if you educate a, a criminal, You've got an educated criminal. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have a change of heart. And and that change of heart, that's not an easy thing to do. But if a guy can sit with his guitar and he can he can write his own story and he can sing his story, he finds a way to express himself. It becomes easier to, yeah, to express not only to himself and find out a greater truth of self, but then it becomes easier to express things to other people and how to coax expression from others onto yourself, and then from there begin to build a dialogue. And, and it's non-confrontational. Right. Yeah. Like, guys in prison, they know how to express themselves, right. but right. it's always right. about a confrontation. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a totally rewiring, but yeah. I mean, that's what you're saying. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the why. Nobody idea. ends up in a hospital, no matter how hard you play your guitar. No matter how bad the song is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've got to, we've got to exactly. leave Riffin headquarters with a rededicated purpose to refocus our institution. We've, we've seen, we went into um, the Northern Nevada Correctional Complex, and we took a load of instruments in there. They have a, a geriatric uh, building there because as the prison, as the sentences become longer and longer and more people are locked up longer and longer, there's prisons are starting to become filled with very old people. Yeah. And there was this group, they call themselves True Grit. And <laughs> these guys are incredible. And so we, we brought a load of instruments in. And they said, well, Wayne, you know, we've got a couple bands here and, you know, we're going to have a show and would you sit in with the musicians? I said, of course, man. There's nothing I'd love better, you know. I walk in. There's eight bands on the yard. They have a Tejano band. They have a a gospel group. They have a funk band. They have a punk rock band. They have a blues band. They have a heavy metal Christian band. It was incredible. And, like, there were 300 guys in the gym to watch the concert, and it was all about the bands, you know, like, well, yeah, and a country band, of course. And, you know, well, I like these guys more than those guys. Well, these guys are, and all the musicians played in each other's bands. So that right there breaks down all the 
right. usual barriers yeah. in prison. Yeah, yeah, you know, Racial barriers, cultural you kinda, barriers. You get boxed in to make connections you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. So, nice. so, so we, know, we know music is, is a powerful tool to help people change. That's and, great. And, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, we're, you know, it's, it's work I'm happy to do. In, in the end, you know, it's the antidote for my own um, addiction and alcoholism. You know, if, if, if the core of addiction and alcoholism is that I'm selfish and self-centered and self-seeking because it's all about Wayne, you know, it's <laughs> like, since I've been a kid, you know, it's about me getting up on stage with my guitar and, and you got to watch me. Yeah. Um, then the, then the antidote to that is, is do something for somebody else for a change. And uh, so to, to, uh, to devote time and energy to helping these guys out. Cause I am those guys, you know, when I talk to prisoners, sometimes I feel like, those these are the only people that really understand what I'm talking about, because right. I've been where they are, and and the things we talk about, we talk honestly and frank, frankly, yeah. and and one of the most probably the, the most freeing form of communication you could really have. I mean, it's even though you've got all, you've got the walls surrounding you, if yeah, you will, but the walls between you, yeah. have never been lower. Yeah, and and we talk, and and it's it's a it's a good thing, and uh, and so I, in the end, you know, I'm I'm not sure if it helps anybody else, but it helps me. <laughs> Ah, it helps. <laughs> well, uh, Wayne, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving us your time. I hope you had a you had a good time. Oh, I like yeah. talking with you guys. It was a good conversation. Great, no, good times. Thank you. Uh, where can they uh, check out whatever it is? Uh, Jail, Jail Guitar, Guitar Doors, Doors, for instance. Okay. .org. Okay. On the internets. And uh, anything else on the internets you want to uh, plug or shows coming up or anything like that? No, nothing too much right now. I'm I'm uh, looking at a couple um, films to score in the yeah. summer. I'm, you still scoring for Eastbound Down? Or no, that... Eastbound's uh, Eastbound might be done. Oh, okay. I mean, officially it ended. We know HBO wants to continue, but the the uh, show's creators, um, I don't think that they, at least they say they don't want to do it anymore. So. I work for them, you know, if they want right, right. to do more, I'm at right their service. There, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks guys. Thank and, you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Appreciate man. it. Yeah. And, uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to straight Riffin. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening to straight Riffin. You can catch all past and future episodes of straight Riffin on the official website, riffin.net, R-I-F-F-I-N.net. Keep in mind, we do air live every Monday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time. That's 10 p.m. to midnight for you East Coasters. You can actually watch that right on Facebook, on our fan page, facebook.com slash straightriffin. Like us, check out the Ustream page. You can even chat while we're doing the show. That's how we interact with the fans. We thank you so much for listening. Check out riffin.net. Buy my album. Buy Teddy's album. We'll catch you again next time. It ripped the fuck up. Bitches!